Hey everybody, right before the show, wanted to let you know we have an update to our Patreon. A brand new monthly movie podcast is available now for $10 and up patrons at patreon.com slash talking simpsons. You want to hear me and Bob talk all about Mask of the Phantasm? The best Batman movie of all time? You can hear all about that in our long, almost three hours long podcast, patreon.com slash Talking Simpsons. I heartily endorse this event or product. Ahoy hoy everybody, welcome to Talking Simpsons where we dance the funky grandpa. I'm your host, crudely drawn filler material, Bob Mackey, and this is our chronological exploration of the Simpsons. Who else is here with me today? Henry Gilbert, and if a strange man offers you a ride, I say take it. Way ahead of you, and who do we have on the line? Uh, we have Alex Navarro, a boy who was also crushed by the horrors of elementary school <laughs> once back in the day. As we all were, and today's episode is Lisa's Sax. And so, just as things look their worst... I realized I could make money selling my medication to deadheads! (laughs) Today's episode aired on October 19th, 1997, and as always, Henry will tell us what happened on this mythical day in real-world history. (gasps) Oh my god! Oh boy, Bobby! Glenn Buxton, the virtuoso guitarist for Alice Cooper, passes away at 49. Wow. Bean and I Know What You Did Last Summer battle it out at the theaters, and Candle in the Wind is the inescapable song on the radio. Oh, that would be this time. Also at this time, the World Series is rudely interrupting cartoons on Late Night Fox, and that's just getting in the way. That's why there is four weeks in between the airing of this episode and the episode before it. All thanks to to the World Series. Boo, baseball. Boo. <laughs> it destroyed Futurama. Well, not yet, but it will. Bean I saw in the theaters, and I think that's when uh, I remember my brother, little brother, was very disappointed by it because it was, it's not, it's a lot broader than even the original BBC series. <laughs> it's not as cerebral as Mr. Bean. <laughs> in in the movie, there's a scene where the guy says, like, and that's my prize, Crystal Vaz. Now, <laughs> watch out, Bean. Don't you eat this pie. <laughs> Was this before or after the movie where Rowan Atkinson played a comedic super spy and actually spoke? Ah, no, this is before that. Johnny English, I believe. And they made a new one of those very recently. They really did. Yeah, how did they do that? Unbelievable. That's a real shame. (laughs) And, uh, yeah, I remember the ads for that. They couldn't make their tagline, Bean Meets Bond, because that is two things that Johnny English people did not own. Mm. But what they could do is quote a newspaper review that said, Bean Meets Bond, and puts that over over every ad for their sh- movie. It's nice and legal, <laughs> that tagline. Guitar stylings of Glenn Buxton, those are nice. I, I like those. I'm not as uh, big a music guy as uh, as Alex is, but uh, but I do Alice Cooper's tune. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, who doesn't love a little bit of Alice Cooper? You know, I, it, he was past the wave, uh, the resurgence of Wayne's World by this point, <laughs> but, you know, he's still out there. He's still touring. He seems to, seems, seems to still be rolling along. He heralded the closing of school and the coming of summer <laughs> hell yes uh and having to hear about being 18 yeah yeah the uh All those billion dollar babies <laughs> but uh, alex is with us again alex navarro famously of giant bomb i believe he was last with us for team homer back in april so welcome back to the show alex thank you very much for having me yes i was there for the uh, for the bowling episode and now i am here for the musical prodigy episode so yes. i'm uh i'm looking forward to digging into this one because i remember this episode very fondly watching it again 
there are some parts I don't remember nearly as fondly anymore. Same here, <laughs> same here. I mean, it is a very strange episode, and that is part of the 3G production series. So to not bore everyone, I'll get through it really fast. 3G were four episodes put together by Al Jean, Mike Reese, Daniel Stern, and Reed Harrison. So they didn't have the Simpsons writing room. It was just four people working on four episodes together, I think over the course of two years, yeah. which is why this episode takes place in 1997, and they say five years ago, meaning 1990. And on the mm. commentary, Al Jean said he was writing this episode while waiting to get tickets to see the O.J. Simpson trial. <laughs> and it's correct. So yeah. this episode was written in 1995, probably intended to air in 96, but held over to 97, I'm guessing. When this has a lot of the things we mentioned in our Springfield Files one too, just like, this joke makes sense in 1995. In 1997, it feels kind of old to do a reference to, say, the Budweiser Frogs, or in this yeah. episode, Fruitopia. It's just like, this. It, by 97, no one was thinking of Fruitopia anymore. It, it, this one makes it so clear. They say so many times like five years ago 1990 you were five years younger 1990 entering school for the first time in 1990 yeah i mean so uh the last flashback episode was in maggie makes three mm -hmm. and i think at that point the simpsons timeline was drifting a bit so they made sure to not mention a year so i married marge and lisa's first word were both given specific dates in time mm -hmm. but in maggie makes three it wasn't given a date they mentioned things like crystal cola but it was so, still sort of fuzzy but now they go back to say 1990 and they're flashing back to a point in time which the Simpsons already existed as a TV show. Yes. Now, is the WB network thrashing they give at the very top of this episode part of that? I can't remember the oh, exact no, that, timeline of when WB network sucked and when it didn't. I believe it started in 95, WB as a yeah. whole. Okay. Yeah. Well, Bart's watching it in present day, so that that's not an inconsistency, though. There are a okay. couple there are a couple inconsistent jokes in the 1990s that bug me because they're also not super funny. So it's yeah. like you break you break the flashback premise and for a joke that's not great, you know? Yeah. Not to get too far ahead of ourselves, I think this episode has a few of what I would call late season four problems. And if you go back to our early Talking Simpsons, you'll hear those. It's like a lot of what I would call a comedy filler. There's a lot of um, things that Al Jean likes to do, like parodies, and some of them are funny, but also things like dream sequences and lots of <laughs> grandpa coming in for no reason. So, and <laughs> And uh, montages as well. Al Jean loves him a montage. And there's lots of that. And this episode is mostly Al Jean, who is the current showrunner uh, and has been for the past, what, 13, 15, 17 I think 17 years. years Oh my now, God, 17 yes. years. <laughs> so he is uh, the mad dictator of the Simpsons and we love him. As Mike Reese says on the commentary, he says, this is the, this is the closest to a truly written by one person episode of the Simpsons ever because he says like, it's 80 or 90% to Gene's script, which every episode gets heavily re written it's more just the wga rules that say well the accredited writer is this credited writer like if you want to hear a lot more about that our interview with dan graney that's on the patreon he goes a lot into how if when we asked him about jokes in his ep his titled episodes he's like well i didn't write that i didn't write that but then he's like well no let me talk about the episodes i wrote really good jokes on even though my name isn't the credited writer but that's not the case in this one apparently you can uh, credit a lot of this to al Jean for good and ill well i want to compliment al Gene, just because I don't want to be too too mean <laughs> to him the whole time, but this does have the good and the bad of Al Gene. There yeah, is, yeah. There is the bad filler. There is a lot of like, boy, this this is 15 minutes stretched to 22. But there's also uh, what Gene is very good at identifying is like an emotional core. There's at least it all builds to an ending of a cute father daughter relationship, which is he's a master of. He knows Lisa and Homer stuff goes great. I'm thinking it's because he's a father as well. He really identifies with that. 
and he usually makes it work really well. Like that's that is a good core kernel of an episode. I just wish they'd maybe given themselves a B plot or something more yeah. to fill it out. You know, they're spinning their wheels a bit, and like we said with uh, the Springfield Files and Sherry Bobbins, and I'm sure we'll say it about Simpson Tide. These episodes do not have the benefit of a writer's room to be uh, sent through, like the machine to make everything better, which is what The Simpsons relies on, like 13 or 15 writers, now probably 30, just sure. all making every line better and sharper. This is four guys working on these four episodes alone in a satellite office. So they do not have the benefit of the machine to make this uh, a better episode. And what was the reasoning behind that? those episodes not going through the, the writer's room? They just wanted more episodes. They being okay. Fox. Yeah, Fox? they being Fox. Yeah. Sorry. Right. But uh, I, I believe the solution proposed to The Simpsons was, hey, make more clip shows. And the writers hated clip shows. Mm-hmm. So instead of making clip shows, they would hire old showrunners back to make uh, episodes independently. So David mm-hmm. Merkin has uh, The Joy of Sect in this season. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bill mm-hmm. Oakley and Josh Weinstein have uh, Lisa the Simpson in this season. And uh, Al Jean and Mike Reese have this and Simpson Tide in this season. So it was a way to get more episodes without taxing the current showrunners. Mm-hmm. I will say that of those episodes, I think Simpson Tide is the only one I actively dislike. Most of those other episodes turned out, I think, pr- for the most part, pretty well. Yes, I yeah. think Simpsons Tide might be the worst one that the the 3G production staff did. But who knows? We'll get to it. Maybe when we yeah. rewatch it, it's actually good. Yeah, <laughs> probably not. No, it's not. No, <laughs> I just watched it at a trivia thing and it's not. Okay. <laughs> we'll, we'll get to it soon. Well, another thing that's interesting to me about this is that it is they mentioned it on the commentary that it's the first time Al Jean has had a sole writer credit in his entire career because he was always partnered with Mike Reese. Mike Reese, you could tell, was getting sick of Hollywood. He said it in his own book. Like, he hates Hollywood. He hates working in Hollywood. Understandably so. It sounds yeah. awful. To Post be getting that. two shows canceled. So this and Teen Angel were canceled. <laughs> he just hated Hollywood. And so it's it, this is an interesting time in the show where Mike Reese will only write, will only executive produce one more episode with Al Jean. And then they'll go through basically a creative divorce and Al Jean will go back. I, they, they seem still very friendly on the commentary. So it wasn't like, I, uh, it doesn't seem like there was any bad yeah. blood. And but. Mike Reese has flown in once a week ever since he moved away to just write on the show. That's just like true. as a yeah. consulting producer. And then Al Jean will get back into the writing staff in like season 12 as a sole producer on the show. This feels like Al Jean realizing do I need this guy or can I do this on my own if, if this guy wants to quit? Like, and uh, yes, but this this episode has a lot of the failings of later Al Jean seasons in it too. Last preface I have about this one is that it comes at such a weird time for this episode to air because it is in between Armin Tamzarian, one of the most meta episodes ever of the show. And then you have the start of Mike Scully's years that is much much more broad and de-Harvardified, as we've heard it called. And then in the middle, you yeah. have this like season three type episode, season four type episode, bridging the two. And it's like so tonally different, it's these a, three episodes together. It's a Simpsons. real case of whiplash. If we're, if we're extra negative, it's just because we've been so used to, uh, you know, Oakley and Weinstein for the past year of our podcast. It's so weird to go back to such a different style immediately without being like gradually transitioning into this different <laughs> style. And, uh, oh, and that Gene, Gene is a very economical storyteller and noticing where there's gray areas like, well, we haven't mined that for a uh, backstory yet. Like one of their most formative episodes as writers, Gene and Reese together was the way we was like that taught them how to do a flashback. It gave them the perfect, you know, style that they would repeat multiple times, either written by them or written by Jeff Martin. And that was a style that the season seven staff copied 
with and Maggie makes three. And I would bet if I was Gene, I'd be kicking myself like they took the Maggie birth for me. That should have <laughs> been my story. You learn about the pacifier origin though. <laughs> yeah. Safeway. Well, and that joke, Mike Reese brings it up on the commentary in a mocking tone, but like Al Jean will do an episode about the origin of Homer's pants. pants. Like yeah. that's, that's how far back they go in these things to find something to explain that hadn't been explained yet. Uh, but okay. So I guess this episode starts just to let you know that this is a Gina Reese one, a minute long intro. They always have long intros cause they're too, their episodes are too short for broadcast. Uh, and then not only do they do one intro, but then they do a full all in the family intro. There's here. four parodies in the first three minutes of this episode. It's amazing. <laughs> Ever actually watched any All in the Family prior to seeing this episode? So I like this is one of those things that I ended up having to look up when I was a kid. I think I did too because it wasn't. It didn't get on Nick at Night until a couple of years later. I feel yeah. like just uh, as as a mega dork, I would re I would watch old sitcoms just so I would get references in Simpsons and Mystery Science Theater. So I would have sought out All in the Family just to have known about it. But I'm sure I heard about it in like a hundred years of television celebrated specials or whatever. Just saw, I've seen clips of it. Yeah. yeah. I included a clip of the original in our Slack channel just for oh. people to listen to, because I feel like this probably needs to be explained to a lot of people. We're all in our mid to late thirties, I guess at this point, and we might've caught it in the late nineties on Nick at night or whatever. And then wherever it reran after that. But I don't think uh, all in the family is as well known. In fact, both this episode and the family guy opening parody, the all in the family opening and family guy is like a zillion times more popular and well-known known than All in the Family. I think that, is that lost the time that the opening of Family Guy is the All in the Family opening? Yeah, I was gonna say, that that played for me, you know, by the time Fa- Family Guy came around, I had done the research and understood what that was. And, you know, I kind of knew what the show, I knew of it ex- its existence. Yeah. But like, the understanding of like, you know, who Archie Bunker was and sort of like what the tone of that show was was not something I really understood until I went and looked it up around the time, either this episode or the one where they do the actual TV parody where they're talking about, where Archie's like, uh, they've got me with a woman American and uh, a hippie American or whatever, you know, the, the, that, whatever it was they were doing for that made me go look it up. Actually did like that joke. I wish I saved my money from the first show. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, but okay. Well, let's hear the original first. Then yeah. the Simpsons version. Okay. Boy, the way Glenn Miller played. Songs that made the hip parade. Guys like us, we had it made. Those, Those were, were the days. days. So if those references were lost on you, listener, they're talking about the 40s. They're singing about the 40s, and Homer and Marge are singing about the 70s in their version. I like how Julie Kavner hits the same sour note that Gene Stapleton does in that song. <laughs> That's Yes, that is very good. All right, so now let's hear the Simpsons version. Boy, the way the Bee Gees played. Movies John Travolta made. Guessing how much Elvis weighed. Those, those were, were the, the days. days. And you knew where you were then! Watching shows like Gentle Ben! Mister, we, we could, could use a man like Sheriff Lobo again. again! Disco Duck and Fleetwood Mac! 
coming out of my A-track. Michael Jackson's still was black. Those words are days. The Simpsons is filmed in front of a live studio audience. That All in the Family song is a great opening to a show about an old racist who thinks that this, the modern times are too horrible. And praising Herbert Hoover. Yes, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And didn't need no welfare state. Like, I'm pretty sure the welfare state was invented because you did need it. Yeah. But uh, it's a great tune to start this show about, about Archie Bunker. But this Simpsons song, like, it's just, it has nothing to do with anything. Like, it's it just, it fills time with an extended parody that they even, like, they do the full song and, and even the cuts out, yeah. the, and the fade out and the cuts to just a tracking shot of houses like it's 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 rather indulgent yeah i do like the accuracy that the things they remember are things from 1974 when they were in yeah, high school yeah so it's a nice call back to the way we was yeah it's good in that way but it just i don't understand it i hope i do like to imagine though people you know 15, 20 years younger than us see that scene and think like the Simpsons really ripped off family guy. <laughs> Jeez. Oh God. Or yeah. why did family guy parody Lisa sex? That's weird. <laughs> the only line from this, this parody that I ever remember outside of watching this episode is the, is, is Homer hitting the gentle Ben note just yeah. because gentle Ben is for some reason, this show, despite maybe ever having seen one of it, ever. Yeah, Gentle Ben and the uh, another of the random ones was hearing Sheriff Lobo. Sheriff Lobo, man. When I heard Sheriff God. Lobo, I was like, I only know Sheriff Lobo, Lobo because Lobo. yeah, because the Simpsons referenced it before is a musty old thing. <laughs> yeah, as far as I'm concerned, Sheriff Lobo is just something that exists within the Simpsons canon. It is not a real show. Yeah, it's just a bunch of references on top of each other, really. I feel like by 1997, Michael Jackson jokes are past their expiration date, though. This is a real mm. 95 taste to it, <laughs> I, I feel. Yeah, I mean, well, just talking about his skin color is like, that. that's an old joke, like 92. Yeah, I mean, like, like, once once he made the black or white video, you couldn't, <laughs> I mean, I think, I think he made that video so you couldn't make the joke anymore. I do like how relaxedly Homer is smoking a cigar, yeah. only for the staging, but I do like it, <laughs> which fits with his character back then, but also makes him Archie Bunker. Like it's, uh, I like thinking back on that all in the family show because Archie Bunker is like, he's an early example of this thing that has been, is happening now still in TV where you have a character that is, not to be liked. He is a bad example, but then the show becomes popular and it's partially because he, people think he's a cool character yeah. and worth aggrandizing, like like BoJack Horseman or Don Draper. Or like, Rick and Morty. Or Rick and Morty, Rick yes. Yeah, Rick Sanchez is a pretty bad guy. You're supposed to not be Rick, guys. Yeah, I mean, the thing with, with Archie Bunker, like the whole premise of that show was that it's like a weird old racist and then his son is like a hippie, right? Like that's the mm -hmm. thing and then yeah. so there's just a constant cultural clashes yes yeah and him just navigating this culture he doesn't understand is this uh one well, then behind the scenes it was about carol o'connor wanting to control the character that norman lear created mm. and it's mm. uh, it caused a lot of problems on the set too and i think a lot of people went on to make much softer versions of that premise like king of the hill is very much all in the family but with a more likable archie bunker mm, yeah. a, a more likable conservative crank <laughs> uh well so after but li like bob said we get three parodies in a row so first we get that then we get 
get a Michigan J. Frog song, which in 1995, WB was brand new. 1997, they were still kind of struggling. They would only hit it big this year when they would finally figure out what they wanted to be with Buffy and that premiering in 1997. And in two years, uh, Bill Oakley and Josh Weinstein would have a Mission Hill premiere. For two whole days. he canceled. (laughs) One of my least favorite pop culture jokes of this era of Simpsons is when their joke is just, look how much this thing sucks. We have literally no joke to go with it beyond just pointing out how much this thing sucks. And that's kind of what that bit is to me is, hey, this other network sucks. So we're just going to have the frog say it. <laughs> yeah, they're really dumping on CBS on the uh, Springfield Files episode. What's a yeah. Saturday Night Crap-O-Rama? <laughs> yeah, Saturday Night Crap-O-Rama. Yeah, that's, uh, Gina Reese had some axes to grind with uh, with networks here. At least name check shows that you don't like. Yeah, well, the, a friend of theirs could work on that, Bob. Yeah. Like, come on. They're not, they're not, they're going to pull some punches. Was Mike Reese home, uh, sorry, was Mike Reese moonlighting on Homeboys from Outer Space yet at this point? Or? Uh, well, that was oh, UPN, boy. the hated oh, UPN, rival of WB. So, well, then at some point they combined and became the CW, right? That's that's how that network eventually was birthed into existence. Yes. Yeah. yeah. That's uh, on the commentary. They joke about how this joke doesn't even work anymore because WB, by the time they record that commentary, which was a decade ago, they're like, the WB is not a thing anymore. B- joined up with the CW or joined WBN to create the CW because there just wasn't space for six networks at that point. The CW is still around. Mostly it is super. Superhero shows and Archie. Uh, oh, and Archie, yes. Okay, comic book shows. Yeah, they they found their way eventually. <laughs> oh, I thought I'd check out the Warner Brothers Network. on the WB. Another bad show that no one will see. I need a drink. It's the TV movie of the year, the Krusty the Clown story. Booze, drugs, guns, lies, blackmail, and laughter. Starring Five-ish Finkel as Krusty the Clown. I went through a five-year orgy of non-stop pills and booze with nothing to show for it but four Emmys and a Peabody Award. <sighs> All right, they're going to show his disastrous marriage to Mia Farrow. Chan Ho, your mother Mia and I are getting a divorce. Chan Ho is over there. I am Chin Ho. Whoever you are, just pass it along, kid. Again, uh, 1995, mm. they're very much in the era of the critic mindset, and we have some Woody <laughs> Allen jokes. But I love Five-ish Finkel. Uh, I believe he was on Picket Fences at this time, but if you want to learn more about him, go to our What a Cartoon episode about the Rugrats Hanukkah special. He played Shlomo yes, in that episode. Yeah. He's a classically trained Yiddish theater performer, and he's a very, very funny... I mean, Five-ish Finkel, that's just a fun name, but uh, his his performance is, is always funny, and just to see the idea that he would star in a TV movie about uh crusty is also it is a funny idea but i will also call bullshit on like the wb didn't have trashy 80s tv movies that's the one channel they didn't do that they were a (laughs) 90s channel so it's just very much it's like a combining of jokes of two easy jokes like i i uh, I never thought of it that way but yeah it doesn't really belong we are we are overthinking it that's our job yeah we definitely (laughs) but at the same time like look any anything that puts five-ish finkel you know front and center in pop culture i am all for one of my all-time great randomly running into a celebrity in new york stories was running into five-ish finkel in a restaurant oh uh, about a year or so before he passed away and he was very old he was very frail 
but he was on his way out walking in. I was like standing in the, uh, the, the, the foyer of the restaurant and he was just smiling at everyone, just sort of like Aww. waving, so, like Aww. having a blast. Like people were walking up to him just, you know, kind of saying, Hey, I love your work. And he, you know, he wasn't talking a lot, but he was just like very receptive, very, very positive and happy. And it's like, that's what you want when you randomly run into a celebrity in a restaurant in New York is you just want them to be nice and happy and not necessarily, you know, running around looking for attention, but you know, he seemed very happy and, and very good spirits. That's so it's sort nice. of like the opposite of meeting Jerry Lewis. <laughs> exactly. Totally. <laughs> yeah. This, this has so many early seasons moments in it too, of like Maggie with her power tools really reminded me of Marge, uh, itchy and scratchy and Marge. And then just people being mad at Lisa playing her damn saxophone. When yeah. it happens in this episode, I'm like, when I was just trying to rack my brain, like when was the last time she ever played her saxophone? On the song uh, "Deep Deep Trouble," yeah, it's, <laughs> that's. I feel like the, like the last time she was yelled at was probably like Lisa's rival for playing her saxophone. It was like a weird holdover yeah. from the early seasons too. Yeah, I think so. That was season start of season, season six, six, three yeah. years ago. So yeah, but it really was an early trait of Lisa that came up occasionally. But Homer yelling at her was mm. like on the old merchandise, on the old songs, and it was never a thing after the first couple seasons. But this episode is very nostalgic for The Simpsons itself. Yeah, well, actually, Alex, I wanted to ask too. You mm-hmm. you wanted to pick this episode partially because of your own musical background. Yeah, you know, it, it's one of those episodes that kind of hits me in the heartstrings, just because you know I was definitely one of those kids when I was younger. Like my parents were frantically trying to find an outlet that I would stick to, you know, just for whatever creativity that I had. Like they they would take me to art classes. You know, I tried drama for a little while. My dad tried to teach me a guitar, which I had like zero deafness at, which is I think still to this day a, a giant disappointment to him. Uh <laughs> And, you know, around the time I was like, hey, let's say like 10 or 11, I started gravitating toward maybe wanting to try learning to play the drums. And my parents were like, okay, uh, if you're going to do this, we need to make sure you're going to commit to it because this is expensive and loud hobby. So I took lessons for a couple of years. And then after a couple of years of that, they surprised me on Christmas with my first drum set. Oh, uh, wow. How do you when rap I was that? like 13 or so. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, that had to be in like the garage or something. How how can they show that? How can they keep that a secret from you? Uh, I forget exactly how they hid it from me. I do remember that I was genuinely surprised, though. <laughs> like it just showed up in the living room one morning. and I was like, holy shit. Where, first off, how did you manage to keep this from me? And second off, thank you. Uh, you know, it was a real cheap, you know, starter kit. It was, you know, not they didn't go all the way in right from the beginning. But uh, I beat the living hell out of those things for a couple of years solid in my uh, my earliest bands and whatnot. That's so I have a certain kind of personal attachment to my first instrument. And so this episode kind of, if not a direct mirroring, but at the very least sort of inspires those feelings in me a little bit. Well, and your professional job is games person, but you, yes. you also play drum. You're still quite a musical person. I mean, uh, wasn't too long ago as of the recording of this, you did a, a, a whole charity stream of playing the drums. Ooh. Yes. So I also worked at harmonics for a while on the rock band franchise. Right. And that is a game that I still play pretty regularly. Uh, it's a good way to kind of stay in practice when you live in a New York apartment and there is no chance of having your drum set set up at all. Uh, so yeah, I, I still do that. And then for for the Extra Life charity every year, uh, I do these like marathon streams of me playing drums uh, until I, I assume until I drop dead at this point. <laughs> It'll just be every year until no, no more. <laughs> until, until I can't move anymore. <laughs> uh, well, I'm, so did you feel a personal benefit as a kid, like creatively or as learning, getting a musical instrument like Lisa has here? Yeah, totally. Especially finding one that I actually had some aptitude 
toward like because I really wanted to learn to play guitar and I tried for years and I just again my brain just does not work the right way for that instrument and drums you know there was a period of my life where I was kind of aimless and depressed and not really sure what I was going to do with myself uh, a lot of those years were spent in bands kind of touring around and you know all the uh, the various years of band drama aside, that was a great outlet for me to just kind of figure out what I wanted to do with my life. Some of the weird memories I have of just being on the road and being in bands and stuff like that is shit that I will cherish probably until mm. my dying day. So I will always have that kind of that, that deep attachment to both the instrument and the music. Wow. Interesting. Yeah, when I, I my only experience with the drums is when I had a, when I was fourteen, I had a friend who had a drum set in his bedroom. It was an odd bedroom, <laughs> and he would invite me over so I would listen to him uh, play uh, drums to Rage Against the Machine songs, and it was not any fun. <laughs> I just wanted to play Nintendo. <laughs> wow. Drums is is like it works in the video game context because the rest of the music there and it's it's all kind of balanced. So that you know that's that those solo streams are kind of fun. I would never ever want to just make a person watch me play drums without. Sleep. any sort of you know like backing band behind me because that is just a miserable way to experience that instrument you got a little boom box there with with rage playing <laughs> I, I bet the audio balance was all off it was perfect in uh in my teens and 20s i befriended several i uh, several of my friends started bands and by the end of it my real appreciation was for the drummer of all of them because it's like you have to he needed to transport the most stuff. He was the most in call. He was like in two, he was in at least two of the bands my friends were in because they just didn't know any other drummers. And it was a huge responsibility to be the drummer, much more so than like the bassist. I Yeah, I, I went from uh, just sort of like being the guy who shows up and plays drums to the guy who schleps everything yeah. uh, in, in about a split second. Most of those tours, uh, I was hauling amps and guitars and I bought a pickup truck when I learned how to drive just because I needed something that could haul all my equipment around. So like a lot of my, a number of my life choices that came after learning the drums were essentially dictated by the fact that I needed to figure out a place to put my damn drums. <laughs> I I did uh, learn a musical instrument in junior high. Well, learn, I mean, I couldn't play it right now, but uh, for two years in junior high band, I played a baritone, which is basically the thing in between like a trumpet and a tuba. It was fun enough to play, but it just wasn't for me. And then plus the, the entire like politics of a middle school <laughs> band was no fun. Wow. I did not oh, like God. it at all. You didn't have weird band nerd sex? That's all I heard uh, about. No, no, yeah. we, we weren't ready for that yet. <laughs> I played guitar briefly as a teen, but uh, it wasn't a challenge I could do like Lisa <laughs> wanted, so I, I put it away. Actually, I still have my guitar in my apartment. I don't know why. Oh, wow. <laughs> I feel a slight guilt watching this, though, too, because them getting mad at Lisa having to practice her music was what... I it was a reversal of this of me being a teenager annoyed at my mom playing her saxophone oh, because uh -huh. uh, my mom plays a lot of different woodwinds and also the trombone in bands like she she loved being in her high school band and middle school band but then kind of fell out of it but then in her like late 30s she got into community band and it's just a lot of you know older people who to every Tuesday night they'd play in the band and just play Play concerts together and it was fun and nice and i just feel bad now that i as a kid was like mom stop playing the saxophone like she she was 
working a full-time job, raising two boys, and she just wanted to have like a, an hour to play her fucking saxophone to practice, and I had to be a jerk and get mad at her for that. I, I, I still feel very guilty about that to this day, and I'm confessing that to all of you guys right here. I mean, when you're a teenager, you're never per, you know particularly cognizant of your parents' needs. You know, it, it, it very much boils down to, well, what is bothering me in a given moment, and that's, that's all the decision-making you need. I had a similar thing with my mom. She didn't play an instrument but she was a dancer like her entire life she was a she had a 25 year career as a as a ballet dancer wow um and later in life when i was a teenager and i was you know kind of you know, definitely making my share of noise in the house with the drums <laughs> uh, she got very into flamenco dancing hmm. uh which was you know a great outlet for her but also resulted in hours of her stomping around on the kitchen floor practicing and whatnot which i'm not going to say that i yelled at her or got annoyed at her directly about it but i definitely would like immediately bolt out of the house <laughs> as soon as she started practicing just to like try and find some peace for myself well i never i did never throw my mom's saxophone out the window though so i'm i'm good in that way i feel bad for all so the you're kids. not as bad as bart <laughs> i feel bad for all the kids whose parents are podcasters oh god dad's talking about transformers again <laughs> when they're probably talking about the, them on the podcast too <laughs> like <laughs> this poor this poor generation of children i they're going to inherit a world on fire and then they have to be podcasted about too but anyway uh yes this, here's bart destroying lisa's saxophone <laughs> supposed to practice an hour a day i'll practice you you'll practice me what does that mean is it supposed to be some sort of threat <laughs> bart make her stop hmm look bart i have to practice my saxophone and you can't stop me oh yeah my dear lisa you are eight and i am ten and in my two extra years on this planet i've learned a few tricks Give me that sax! No! I said give me! I said no! Give me it! No! Give it! 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 And then a bunch of things hit it, including Nelson. Four times. And including a reference to laughing. That's all you need to know. The guy in the tricycle. the full song. You think a minute would go by where they wouldn't reference a television show? I don't think so. Not on Al Jean's watch. I I like as an older brother I did uh, I do like Bart's stance of like by being older than you I am correct so mm-hmm. I I have won like that's that's all you need is a big brother to try and do that I'm am I the only big brother on this podcast here I know Bob is not I'm a little uh, brother and it burns me up inside <laughs> I am an only child so uh, I'm I, jealous uh, I was I was running solo uh see that that's how you were able to practice your drums you didn't have a, another sibling fucking you fucking with you on that <laughs> shit <laughs> so that flat the flat sax is a pretty funny visual i do like her turning it over that's it's a cute that's a cute image uh and the i think it goes by way too fast that bart should feel guilty about destroying her saxophone yeah it's, it's like it's, he's basically like not my problem anymore yeah. he's not punished for it or anything <laughs> I guess he figures it was an oops because like it was they were both pulling on it. Who's to say who True. did this wrong? But I mean he was he was working under orders. He had orders from from Homer, you know, to, to get the job done. Uh no court in the land would convict him. <laughs> Watching this the first time as a kid, I when Homer finally starts he says the three things that start a flashback in Simpsons Land, that was when it clicked for me, like, oh, it's one of these episodes. Yeah. Okay. Which uh this is the first time they've ever flashed back to, like you said, truly when The Simpsons was on TV. And that always feels weird to me when they've done that since and in this one, because if you're going to talk about 
major pop culture of 1990, it's weird to not talk about the Simpsons, but obviously they can't, but it's just, it makes it just for a weird gray spot. And in Maggie Makes Three, it's supposed to take place in 1993, but they Mm -hmm. never say 93. Like they say 90 in this and 84 in Lisa's First Word, and I believe 80 or 81 in um, I Married Marge. Yes. Yeah. Now, is this the first time that they explicitly referenced Tracy Ullman by name? I think um, so. Troy McClure might have on the 138th oh, episode Spectacular. Oh, yeah. yeah okay. About, like, psychiatry sketches and yes, songs. that's true. <laughs> yeah. That's almost, like, non-canon. Non- yeah. And, uh, but, yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, this is the first time I think they have talked, like, a Simpsons character uh, in Springfield has said the Tracy Ullman show, which is also funny to bring her up because, like, I don't know, four years before the this episode aired they finished a lawsuit between her and gracie films for ownership of the simpsons which she lost yeah the, so here's our here's when the flashbacks begin it all happened in 1990 back then the artist formerly known as prince was currently known as prince tracy Ullman was entertaining america with songs sketches and crudely drawn filler material and bart was eagerly awaiting his first day of school Honey, I can't right now. Bart's gonna be late. Now, son, on your first day of school, I'd like to pass along the words of advice my father gave me. Homer, you're dumb as a mule and twice as ugly. If a strange man offers you a ride, I say take it. Lousy, traumatic childhood. Ooh, there's the bus. Goodbye, sweetheart. School will be fun. Ah, uh, the how uh, we're all crushed by the system. I know this. This school will be fun is just the most painful line in this episode <laughs> by far. Yeah, that this episode has some real highs where it finds like real identifiable emotions children feel and that you can feel for your children too. Like I remember being crushed by my first days of school, not maybe the first day, but definitely the realization of like, oh, this is just it. Like this is my life from now <laughs> on is a school that will never end. Apparently, yeah. I I didn't have my soul completely crushed right out of the gate. I actually, my first couple of years of elementary school were pretty okay because I went to a relatively small school where all the kids were relatively nice. And by the time I got to third grade and I moved out to California, I realized I was in way over my head because <laughs> I was going to public school. The kids were real assholes and I had zero capacity for handling that. In kindergarten from the beginning, I think it was almost like not good for me also because I, I needed glasses in first grade. So that's when that awkwardness began. And I, I just also remember now it's, this is like a nothing moment, but as a kid, this like made me, it's one of the most humiliating moments for me as a kid, even though it's nothing, but it was that I, we turned in a paper, to the teacher like a worksheet something simple but I didn't put my name on it because I didn't think to put my name on it I messed up and the teacher was like who is is this guess it's Mr. Nobody's I'm going to sign this Mr. Nobody and I'm going to put it on the Mr. Nobody board right here next to the board and it hung hung there for a while (laughs) of just as an example for other kids to not leave their name off of things I was humiliated I I recall that as a very humiliating moment of my childhood. I 
mean, I think everything was cool for me until high school. So uh, <laughs> lots good. of bullying and uh, horrible alienation. But uh, yeah, school, I just didn't want to be there for sure. <laughs> school will be fun is a great way to sum up what you know is going to happen to Bart, but what he doesn't know. Yeah. And I got to, I also got to call out on this. When they lit, when they say outright 1990 and then play Don't Worry, Be Happy. I mean, I am sure you heard that on the radio in 1990, but that song came out in 88. Like I think uh, of that as an 80s song. Yeah. I kind of do too. I definitely think of it as late 80s, but I can I can actually pinpoint probably a couple of shows and and times memories where I heard that song on the radio circa like early 90s. Like I feel like that song just refused to go away for a very long time. It it was an inescapable song. I mean, Bobby McFerrin hates that that song is inescapable. It was early um it was early hope punk. Oh god. Oh god. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> Simpsons will be right back. Twin Peaks has some damn fine coffee, and we've got some damn fine patrons at patreon.com slash Talking Simpsons. As always, this show is brought to you by our wonderful supporters at the Talking Simpsons Network. The subscribers there help me and Bob do the show full-time, which also lets us get awesome guests like Alex Navarro this week, who we thank very much, and you guys should definitely follow him on Twitter and check out all the cool stuff he does with the gang at Giant Bomb. But if you'd like to support this podcast and not only hear every episode a week ahead, of time at ad free but also do the same for our sister podcast what a cartoon where me and bob go through a different animated series each week you can do that at patreon.com slash talking simpsons it's really easy to sign up you get your own rss feed that lets you download the podcasts wherever you listen to them and not only that we have tons of exclusives there exclusive limited series like talking critic where we go through every episode of the critic talking futurama where the first season of futurama gets the same treatment is the simpsons and coming soon our king of the hill limited series as well where we cover that first season you can find all of that and tons more for five dollars a month just for subscribers at patreon.com slash talking simpsons Also, this week's episode is brought to you by our t-shirts. If you'd like to get yourself your own Talking Simpsons t-shirt, we have two of them and they're both really cool. If you head to tiny.cc slash talking shirt, you can get one of two shirts, each designed by our wonderful friend of the show and previous guest, Nina Matsumoto, artist extraordinaire. One is a beautiful sky blue and it is a Talking Simpsons logo in the style of Ion Springfield. And the other is a death metal black which is a tribute to our death stalks you every turn death jingle with a certain grim reaper that might be familiar to some of you both of those started in 1999 they ship somewhat internationally and shipping and handling is added afterwards if you'd like to check them out for yourself they're really cool i got the i have one of each they are very high quality shirts at shirtsickle.com which is all where you can find it or again just go to tiny.cc slash talking shirt Do we have the Skinner clip? Because I have a few things to say about this. Oh, yes. Okay. Yeah. 
Welcome, kindergartners. I'm Principal Sinner. Skinner. Well, that's it. I've lost them forever. Now I'd like to introduce you to Lunch Lady Doris, who will serve you healthy, nutritious meals. Yeah, right. Miss Phipps, the school nurse, who will provide ointments and unguents. And Jimbo, the school bully, who will administer noogies and nipple twisters. I look forward to wailing on all of you. Added extra clap, not college material. <laughs> hey, we burn! Hide your hands from me heat! <laughs> God, you understand English? So that Skinner clip, I wanted to point out, there's a lot of early Simpsons stuff packed into that scene. Skinner's early trait was misspeaking, and I believe that ended in Lisa's Pony. That was one of his early traits, to say words incorrectly in front of an audience of people. So that was an early Skinner trait you've all probably forgotten. I, I did until I oh, watched I totally the scene. Had. Yeah, it was like, I, they got rid of it for a reason. It wasn't funny. But also, Miss Phipps was the school nurse before the, the Lunch Lady Doris joke, I get two paychecks this way. <laughs> and uh, I think the last time she had a spoken line was in Camp Krusty. It was during the school countdown where they're all counting down until the last minute is over. Yeah. And she's in the nurse's office. I believe Milhouse has a thermometer under his mouth and he says one of the numbers and she says, keep your mouth shut. That's or something right. like yeah. that. That is her last spoken line, I believe, in the episode, in the season, or sorry, in the series. Wow. And uh, the next time she appears as a school faculty member is in the PTA disbands and she has blue hair. And then after that, she's just a background character she's just relegated to background <laughs> character status but she's a very season one design and she was intended to be the school nurse it feels like al Jean again just remembering like what did we what was the bible for season one yeah Who are these characters because i do remember her in season one where bart goes to the to the nurse's office pretending to be sick and she dropped a bunch of tongue depressors on the floor and is putting them back yeah and in bark it's an f she's the one who sends him home or confirms that he's sick and has to stay home that's right yeah, yeah. that's I, her largest role to date but yeah miss phipps that was a school nurse at one point and also was that a posthumous uh, Lunch Lady Doris recording or like an archived recording of Doris Grau because it was recorded at least after well, more than a year after she died so if they created this in 1995 they could have recorded it in 95 oh, as well oh you have a point yeah so this could be her final I mean yeah I, I, I looked this up and it did say that this is the last time that Doris Grau appears as Lunch Lady Doris uh, in an episode Alex's last episode was the previous time we'd heard her speak. I have no son. <laughs> right. And that had aired a week after her death. Yeah. And and now we're nine months after that. No, uh, over a year after that. And I mean, her saying, yeah, right. That could have just been sitting on their, you know, editing room floor. Like there's a million reasons Doris Grau would have said, yeah, right. Uh, for any reason. And Algina Mike Reese love Doris Grau, which is why she's a character in the critics. So it's not uh, any, any weirdness why she's in this episode. It makes perfect sense. But it's so, so sad to hear her final line. Yeah. <laughs> until uh, until Al Jean rather kind of rudely recasts her a few years. Not a about, fan of that. About a decade later. I mean, he realized the mistake and made her lunch lady Dora. So a totally different character that respects the the history of Doris Crow. Uh, yeah, that Skinner misspeaking, I remember like uh, he said like medley, medley yeah. wrong. Like he, and stormy leather instead of stormy weather. Yeah, the, yeah, and you're right. The reasons those didn't continue after season two is because they're not that funny. I think in the Christmas episode when he's introducing the student I think he messes up then too. Yes, yeah. Like that's Skinner's first spoken line in broadcast history is misspeaking like that. So like possibly a toupee and misspeaking were his early characteristics. <laughs> 
it's incredible that you're able to pick this out because that is not even a character trait that I think I ever picked up on at any point in the history of the series. <laughs> it is not funny. That's probably why. <laughs> yeah, that's a big part of it. Him being a extra boring single man who lives with his mother is so much more interesting than guy who misspeaks. I mean, well, that, that, that feels it feels more like in the line of the Matt Groening, you know, simple vision of a family and being a student in school kind of thing, as opposed to how wild and, and ridiculous the show will get from uh, uh, from there. Yeah, I mean, his name shows you what he was intended to be, a stern disciplinarian. He's named after mm. B.F. Skinner, of course, and we never <laughs> think about that ever. No. <laughs> I think, you know, in an episode that we're complaining is full of filler, I think they really missed an opportunity by not... When Bart gets on the bus, there should be his first meeting with Otto. Otto yeah, like, Otto Origins. <laughs> I mean, Otto, it, speaking of, I've been... This episode made me think a ton of seasons one and two, and Otto was his sounding board. Like, they had an Otto scene almost every episode where Bart's like, hey, Otto, man, and this thing at school made me sad. Well, you know what I say, a joke. Yeah. <laughs> and Otto went back to his home planet after the Otto show. <laughs> pretty, pretty much. He'll get married in a few episodes. Yeah. Or in a few seasons, I think. Oh, God, that one is coming up soon, isn't it? That's the the, the Poison Tribute Band episode, right? Yeah, I think that's yeah. like season 12. We're, we're still a distance we're a away from that. He's got a ways to go. Yeah. Apu has to get married first, and then they can reuse Wedding after <laughs> wedding after wedding. Yeah, just as they predicted. <laughs> Why does Willie wear red overalls in the past? That's an interesting choice, too. It's weird. It's like a, a real Mario Brothers thing. <laughs> the overall colors change. Yeah, I mean, I guess the only way you can depict, like, a little bit of youth uh, comparatively, because, I mean, obviously the characters don't really look any older, is just, well, he has a slightly different costume. It just feels like <laughs> a mistake to me. <laughs> <laughs> and, well, the, the design on everybody's, like, Muppet Baby-style design, they're cute, I the only ones I think are slightly I think Bart is really well done because he you know they shave he has seven points on his hair instead and a bigger of bigger head yeah bigger he's adorable head. he's he's so adorable a uh, millhouse later super adorable but the bullies are like they the ones they're the ones that feel most Muppet babies to me where they're like well if we put a cute animal on their shirt then it counts as them being cuter I like that they uh, sorry I didn't like that they did it twice they did it once with Jimbo I was like that's cute but then Nelson has like a little baby chick on his shirt mm -hmm. or whatever instead of a skull. Actually, it should have just been a human head instead of a skull. <laughs> Over time, it turned into a skull. Maybe a whale. Yeah, yeah. We come back from that story, and Lisa is right to point out that Bart's story overtook hers just because just like that's in, the first act. Just like in Lisa's first word. Yeah. It's a story about Bart. <laughs> Every time. Yeah. And she can't escape him. And and then Bart's just like, yeah, it's my story. I took it over. And uh, we also get a, here for no reason, here's a poo, which, that's a funny line. That's I like that, all right. A poo makes a lot of surprise appearances in this episode that I like. Well, there's only so much filler Abe can do on his own. You need you need another character there, and why not Apu, you know? Why not? And, you know, <laughs> I think of all the, like, fillery kind of throwaway jokes in this episode, that's the one that I think I liked most is just, you know, he doesn't do anything really in this episode, but the two times he shows up, I think both jokes kind of land. Yeah. Mom, can you tell me the story of how I got my saxophone and not have it turn into a story about Bart? Oh, sure, honey. Bart had just completed his first day at school, and Bart... Mom! Hey, she's just giving the public what it wants. Bart by the barrelful. Sorry, Lisa, it's just how the story goes. No matter what Bart tried, he just couldn't fit in at school. A, B, C. Uh, line. D. D, E. Um, line. F, Bart. And believe me, you'll be seeing plenty of them. Oof. Uh, 
She's like an even rough. more uh, intense Miss Hoover, that character. There's a reason that character never comes back either. She has no comedy to her. She's just yeah. mean. Just a mean kindergarten Very teacher. Mean cutting remarks with no comedy to them. Uh, against a five-year-old, too. Yeah. She's like, boy, you really owned that five-year-old lady. Though, I mean, you're supposed to hate her. I get it. Like, It's so real the way Bart is gripping his shirt. Like, yeah. That, that's very well that's very well done kid uh action recreation there i think yeah it's it's a it's a meaningful anxiety and i will also say that the bart saying you know bart by the barrel giving the people what they want that also feels a little bit like a 1995 joke like (laughs) referencing maybe the more the the specific popularity of bart simpson in the early to mid 90s versus the time this episode came out yeah 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 bart mania is firmly in the past but 1990 was bart mania though yeah which Mm -hmm. should have i mean that'd be like them not referencing alf in their 1984 episode like it's just crazy Mm -hmm. oh and right before that there is a there's a children drinking joke which goes by really fast but i i I, have several flashbacks or dream sequences very family guy style yeah i do like the realistic version of an alcoholic though who says like uh and i never drink Drink again. Glug, 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 glug. That was a joke in A Star is Burn says, like, I'll never drink again. Beer here. I'll take 10. Ah, fuck, you're right, man. They're just repeating themselves over and We're over. now in joke court, everybody. <laughs> and I find them guilty. <laughs> but though, as a kid, I definitely got sad at school. And like, Bart's being depressed in bed about school is... That's an elementary school memory for me. Before I knew what depression was, I then was you're depressed like, on the floor with real depression. <laughs> you graduate from the bed to the floor. That's that's how it goes. No, okay, so this is one of my most quibbly quibbles. Oh boy, of, yeah. of jokes in this one. Bring it on. I'm waiting for Alex to just hang up. <laughs> yes, yeah, so, I'm sorry, Alex. I'm sorry. No, I'm I'm here for it. <laughs> <laughs> but okay, curious George and the Ebola virus. One, it's not very funny. It's like okay, monkeys are spreading this virus in Africa, which is like killing lots of people not particularly funny uh hey everybody sure, hey, everybody saw outbreak it's well yes so that's that's lame enough on its on in 95 to be like we're making an outbreak joke but that's 95 fine 97 outbreak joke even older but to then put it in the scene that specifically takes place in 1990 that will then like right after it have a twin peaks thing you're now doing a 1995 joke in 1990 like doesn't the specificity of 1990 give you some other joke to do than an obvious joke about curious george getting ebola which only works if it's said in 1995 or onward i totally agree with you and there's another weird time thing where things slip between time periods that i don't like that we'll get to in act three but okay. uh, there's some weird inconsistencies with the time period it's just I like noticed. then don't do a flash Flashback. If you can't stay um, consistent with it, then don't do it. If only but. because they were both so good at you know keeping consistent, especially with uh, Lisa's first word and I married Marge. It yeah. was like this is the year it takes place in, and also the way we was like this is 1974. Everything is 1974 except for maybe like one thing. Yeah, yeah. I think I can't remember exactly if it was 95 or what or somewhere around that era, but I do remember there being just like an incredible glut of Ebola jokes around that time. Just you know, in late night comedy and and just around. And I, I, I agree. I don't think that joke holds up as anything now. I feel like that is born out of a very specific referential thing that a lot of people were joking about, yeah. not necessarily writing actual punchlines for, <laughs> just referencing because just, I don't know, Ebola is somehow inherently funny. You're right. I mean, I think we were all just in love with the term flesh-eating virus, and that, that was the punchline. It's hilarious. It eats your flesh. Well, it feels like in the comedy world, we go, like, every few years when there would be, it was reacting to a heightened 5 p.m. news store action news 
news about killer bees or the Ebola virus or bird flu or these things that are actual, they are real threats. I'm not saying they're they're baked up by the media, but they are so overblown by the media that then every comedian has to joke about this. Like, hey, you hear about this bird flu? I had some Kentucky Fried Chicken and uh, I think I got some or whatever. That was a bad joke. I got to fly to the bathroom, buddy. Ah, uh, there, you put yeah, that. I could be on Jay Leno. <laughs> and so yeah, the Ebola virus, I think, was just another of those. Like, every comedian makes it, but I expect better from the Simpsons to then to just make a joke about the the hot new uh, killer virus of the uh, of the time. It feels a bit criticky a lot of these things. And then especially you know like you said they followed up with that Twin Peaks gag, which I actually think is one of the better referential bits from this era of the Simpsons. Like it's not a long gag, it's not a you know a labored gag. It's just one good bit of funny visual you know of a several years old show at that point that I thought ah, you know that's that's funny. That's that's Twin Peaks. Sure. Oh totally. I I really like the Twin Peaks jokes. And I think, too, it works so well to make a 1990 reference. Some of the 1990 reference don't work as well in 95 or 97 because a lot of those things are still ongoing. But Twin Peaks is so specifically just 90 to 92, really, that when you make that joke, then you know it's happening then. Yeah, it exploded around the same time as The Simpsons. Mm -hmm. Like, they had the exact same, like, rise to power. Alex, I uh, Twin Peaks has still been a blind spot for me as a pop culture enthusiast, though, I mean, I've seen a million things that reference it. I now just know it enough that it makes it feels almost redundant to watch it. But are you are you a Twin Peaks fan, Alex? Yeah. So I was kind of where you were for a long time. Like I had watched the first season when it was on TV and understood almost none of it because I was just too young to, to even think in the kind of abstract terms that show was, show was working in. And I remembered almost nothing about it, but I had definitely absorbed enough of the pop culture references that came afterward to sort of piece together what was going on in that show and why people loved it. So when the or the return season came out a couple of years ago, dedicated myself to rewatching the entire series. And lo and behold, that first season still holds up very well. A huge chunk of that second season very much does not. <laughs> but I do think that it is all totally worth watching at least once. And the the return series is actually fantastic. Mm-hmm. I, I really love that 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 show a lot. But the old series, they really had something with that first season. Yeah, yeah. Actually, in 2010, I played all of Deadly Premonition. I 100% of that game. It's one of my favorite <laughs> games of all time. And then I was like, I should probably watch Twin Peaks after this. And so I watched the first season and I loved it. And then I was told to not watch the second season. I was like, I'm okay with that. So I just only watched the first. <laughs> season and i was like boy this this game should not exist it's it's illegal it's uh you should you should watch like the first like eight episodes of or nine episodes of the second season and then like the last four mm. everything in the middle is pretty skippable well, i played alan wake i felt <laughs> i know enough oh, about yuck. It. yeah fair enough <laughs> the filler arc of twin peaks where they fight <laughs> on another planet well in twin peaks don't they mainly pick up thermoses and batteries from duracell <laughs> <laughs> uh but yes here's homer watching twin peaks That's damn fine coffee you got here in Twin Peaks. And damn good cherry pie. Brilliant. (laughs) I have absolutely no idea what's going on. That was me. (laughs) I I think that's how many people felt in the 90s. I think it was to the... uh, It was 
was it like the first prestige TV show of its of its mm, time? I think before that, like miniseries were really the prestige TV. So maybe the first like network. God, I think I, it kind of felt like a miniseries because it was hour long episodes and they were all connected. So maybe mm-hmm. maybe it was the first. Uh, I'm I'm not sure actually. I mean, it definitely set the the stage for what certainly what became you know the the modern definition of prestige TV. I mean, I, what I will say is that at that time, I don't remember a lot of filmmakers of the caliber of David Lynch even trying to do stuff in the TV space. And I think that was kind of the thing that a lot of people latched onto early on. I was like, oh, this very important filmmaker is making this show, so we all have to pay attention to it. Yeah. And that was kind of what drew a lot of people in initially. I think before this Prestige TV was outside of PBS, it was miniseries like Roots, and they had to be like historical, but also not very avant-garde like Twin Peaks would be. So maybe it was right. the first thing of this fashion. And uh, Marge showing him the paper, uh, the drawing Bart did. I like that too, because it's, it's a very realistic parent thing of like, I'm not, yeah, look, hey, it's good. Do you want, I will give a thumbs up to my child's art. Do I have to really look <laughs> at it? <laughs> I, I didn't. Um, so I have a story about uh, something similar that happened to me when I drew a picture as a kid mm. in our class. Uh, I don't know if I told it on this podcast before, but it was like, you know, draw your family and draw you. And I was a little artist. I like cartooning and I liked, uh, you know, funny jokes and funny cartoons and comic books and stuff like that. In my drawing, I think I drew my parents like each drinking a beer <laughs> because it's like, yeah, my, at the end of the day, my parents drink beer. I drink beer now as an adult. You just drink beer. You're an adult. <laughs> But it was like, uh, we got to call the parents in and talk about this. And then I was told by my parents, you never draw us drinking beer <laughs> if you're going to draw a cartoon. And I was like, okay. But it was like a serious like a serious talk had to be had because in kindergarten, I drew my parents drinking beer wow. in, in a, a family picture, which um, is a good social commentary on my part, I got to yeah. say. I mean, you didn't get to the stage where they called Child Protective Services and you had to stay with the Flanders for a while. Exactly, exactly. I mean, we were really working class people. You drink beer, who cares? But I mean, (laughs) these Catholic schools are all uppity. Yeah, uh, and then there's another real season one throwback of the idea of playing catch with Bart too, or not even just yeah. season one, but like the shorts. And like Homer is wearing a lucky red cap, not yes, Bart. Yeah, maybe that's the one he'll give to Bart. And they should do a how he got his lucky red cap episode. They I'd, probably know. They they probably have. I and there's so there's also so many jokes of like Homer being mean to Abe, but. I do like the presentation of this one that Abe is in a full like 1919 pinstripe baseball outfit. And then when he's told to leave, he's like, I'm gone. (laughs) (laughs) He's there for the joke. He knows he's there to waste time and to tell a joke. When a boy doesn't want to play catch with his old man, something is seriously wrong. I'll play catch with you, son. Get the hell out. I'm gone. And uh, then also to check the box of the things you do in flashback episodes, we get to see Dr. Hibbert with a different look. They make him Mr. T, which again, like 1990 Mr. T, I mean. They already gave him a 1993 haircut in uh, in Maggie Makes 3, so I don't know what a 90 haircut would be. I mean, the joke with Hibbert is his hair changes with every, you know, he has the fashionable hairstyle for a black man in every mm. time period we see him in. I don't know if they, they've done that with future episodes, if they've done that hair joke. Yeah, I feel not- like if they were going to do... 1990 it would have had to be the hammer fade and they probably would have had to give him really billowy pants to sort of (laughs) kind of tie all that together to a specific reference i think the 93 one he had sort of a fade going on i think he did yeah more like an arsenio fade though yeah and uh mr t for 1990 i mean again it's like yeah i the 80s continued into the 90s for a while so it's not like mr t wasn't heard of in the 90s but he was just his peak had passed a long time ago in the by the time 1990 it. I didn't I didn't get that Star of David thing but then I looked at Mr. T and he did wear a giant gold Star of David oh, yeah. and he wasn't Jewish he was just mm. like gold 
He's just very inclusive. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I'd heard the story of his gold was that as a bouncer, when he would throw people out of a club, he would take their gold chains as like uh, basically scalping them. It's like an RPG thing. or something. <laughs> <laughs> and so, and so that's it. Originally, all of his gold was to present how rich or how good he was at throwing people out of the place because those were all the ones he'd collected. I believe that that was his uh, his old story for it. I'll trust him on that one. I'll take him at face value. <laughs> all I know is. That he loves his mother. I know he really, really loves his mother. Go, everybody, go out and watch the uh, the Immortal VHS classic. Be somebody or be somebody's fool. <laughs> and the song uh, "Treat Your Mama Right." It's really good. It's a magical tune. Uh, speaking of all these season one returns, yes, finally the return go. of Doctor J. Lauren Pryor. Mister and Missus Simpson, there's nothing to be alarmed about. Public school can be intimidating to a young child, particularly one with as many flamboyantly homosexual tendencies is your son. Bart's gay? Bart? Uh, whew, wrong file. Uh, look, the, the point I'm trying to make here is that Bart must learn to be less of an individual and more a faceless slug. <laughs> hmm. Lisa, how old are you? I am three and three-eighths. Hmm. Lisa? If I have five apples and I take away three apples, how many apples do I have left? Two apples. Wait a minute. She's right. (laughs) Very good. Marge, Homer, I believe your Lisa may be gifted. That's wonderful. But still, can't you do anything for Bart? Marge, he's five. His life is over. Lisa's the wave of the future. Wave of the future. (laughs) That's right, honey. So J. Lauren Pryor, like Miss Phipps, was killed in a Springfield explosion. He doesn't appear anymore. Not really. That's just my theory. But he actually came back. So uh, Harry is giving him a different voice. His first major role was in Bart the Genius, showing that Bart was, you know, you know, he was fooled into thinking Bart was a genius. Actually, if you look in his office in this episode, he's got the picture of Einstein and somebody else. It used to be Bart. I think. Oh, yeah. I think that's Freud. I read that. Yeah. Freud Freud and Einstein together. But one of those was Bart and Bart the Genius. And um, Harry is giving him a different voice because he he sounded a lot like Flanders in mm. Bart the Genius. It wasn't that the dry voice he's doing here. It's, it was much a little peppier, but he's a nobody. He doesn't have a character. And like many of the characters from this era, he was named... His name is a joke. His name is uh, J. Lauren Pryor because he pries into people's lives. Just oh. like Mr. Largo, named after the musical term, and Artie Pie with Artie in the Sky. And like, it was... All these things are very season one in that the character's name is a joke, like Skinner. Skinner is named after B.F. Skinner. Krabapple, like Crabapple. It was very much the convention of naming these initial characters that they dropped. Nelson Muntz was uh, after a full Nelson yeah. wrestling move. <clears throat> Jaylor and Pryor, I can totally see why he was invented for Bart the Genius because with all the problems Bart gets into at school, uh, a guidance counselor seems very useful. Like, oh yeah, he'll go to his guidance counselor a lot or this this uh, professional at school, he's going to reflect on a bunch and they, they pretty rarely use him. The last time he was used in a major way was separate vocations. Yeah, that's true. And I think they discovered it's just funnier if he goes to see Skinner. It's a funnier yeah. interaction. And Let's have... cut out the middleman and just send him to Skinner already. He did come back for a 2011 episode, I found out, in a major role. His uh, last major role, it was uh, an episode about Marge's hair turning gray. Ah, I see. Yes. I mean, I think one can probably assume that the Springfield school system budget only allows him to show up for a few days uh, per school year. It's true. We don't know what became of Mr. Glasscock. <laughs> uh, I mean, he. I, I would assume suicide. Oh, jeez. Sorry, that was too dark. <laughs> uh, but yeah. Save that for Mo. <laughs> 
Uh, but so, yeah, it's, uh, separate vocations was the last time it needed him for a joke purposes because it was about the things a guidance counselor would do, which is tell you what your future career would be, which uh, it's pretty useless now. I think, or even then, I I actually I expected when I saw Jay Lauren Pryor as a kid, I thought like, well, I guess this will be something that happens in my elementary school. I never once I did go to a guidance counselor once, but they were just a person to hand out detention. The one time <laughs> I ever got detention and they a referral, guide you to the detention room, <laughs> pretty much. That, that was my experience with a guidance counselor. I didn't have a real guidance counselor until I was in high school. And the guy I had was deeply ineffectual at like a molecular level, like just had no real understanding of anything kids were telling him beyond, you know, what kind of what he understood as his role of like a guy. Just like, yeah, I don't know. Uh, you know, maybe these electives aren't good for you. Maybe you should try this other thing instead of metal shop. I don't know. Like he just, he seemed completely <laughs> out of his depth, Aww. which was perfect for the school system that I was in. <laughs> there's, there's a lot of failings of, uh, I mean, Lisa's whole tragedy in this episode is that she is gifted and that means she shouldn't be in a public school because there's no place for her there. Like it, it would be a waste for her, which it's, they have more of a knock on the, they don't knock that system enough in this episode really i think with it they should be mad of like well why why do we have to send lisa to another school though so she can be nurtured why can't yeah, the school do this then should have better funding and better staff members i mean that is kind of one of the sticking points of the simpsons overall is that you know they're they're very happy to rail on the broken systems like you know the the american public education system but they're never really apt to interrogate it too much deep beyond too much deeper beyond that it's just no schools are irreparably broken of course we are sending her or want to send her to a private school because that's what normal people would want to do to try to get them away from the public school system. You can't fight City Hall. It's all useless. It's Why bother? That's the... Exactly. <laughs> that's... Well, I mean, definitely the Simpsons are like, let's have a half... Let's do a half-assed job is mm-hmm. the message of the show in general. So I, I get not wanting to try, but yeah, it's... Having, I, having been to a private school, though, um, I can tell you the education is not much better. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, a lot of private schools popped up in the 50s for some reason. Mm-hmm. Who knows mm-hmm. why? I wonder why that happened. Yeah, not, no well. Supreme Court ruling happened. Don't worry about it. No. Uh, well, though I I I wasn't officially a gifted kid in elementary school too, and I kind of like Lisa. I kind of regret it now. I I think I did. It was I think it was a net positive if you were to balance the pros and cons of being a gifted kid. I got opportunities I wouldn't have. I got it gave me a boost in self esteem, which I really needed as a depressed <laughs> elementary school kid. Oppositely, though. I think it gave me a little too much like, oh, I'm smarter than everybody else. Fuck homework. Like that yeah, kind of sense yep. that that really did me wrong. It didn't teach me the skills I needed. Yeah, it was also funny in that we talked about this before on pod, on other podcasts, but it's like, we'll give you the better out- education outside of the school. Come to this van and <laughs> yes. learn better things. Like, why can't it take place in the school? It just can't. Come to the van. I went to a slightly different route in that uh, I was never in a specific like gifted kid program or anything like that, but I started school a year earlier than all the other kids in my class. Uh, so I was like, I was about 11 months younger than just about everyone else in my class going. So I didn't skip any grades or anything like that. I just started a little bit earlier and, uh, you know, that was fine. But also I think there might've been, t- it, it, there might've been some benefit to me getting away from like the, the standard education system, because I feel like I kind of drowned a little bit in that, especially on the social end of things. 
Mm, yeah. Me too. I, it, and being a gifted kid didn't help that. It didn't help me all that much socially either because gifted classes were part of my time in elementary school, but not the whole time. But it did take me out of class enough that it was like, I wasn't, I was a nerdy kid. I wasn't making too many friends anyway, but it didn't help that I was out of the classroom for hours of the day and letting them know like, well, this person's different in that he is apparently smarter than you. So, you know, he's got classes, get the the, the roadmap has been Uh, laid out for you kids. You don't need any more proof. He's a nerd. (laughs) Get him. I do, uh, as it's time for Henry's gay corner, but I do like the, the homosexual joke is funny to me, but also it's, it's a sadly tragic thing about like, this does happen to a lot of queer LGBT kids where they are outed by a trusted school teacher or school member to parents. And that is a dangerous thing to do. Like that, not, not all parents respond positively to hearing that their kid might be uh, LGBT, but it's a funny here. It's funny that they're like, haha, Millhouse is gay, but very funny. But Millhouse is not do gay they, though. Do they ever really follow up on that though? Like, I feel like no. there are jokes about it, but every time they flash forward to Millhouse in the future, like it's not that they ever actually establish that in fact Millhouse is gay. It's just that they see him as having these tendencies toward homosexuality. But like, I feel like they never actually pay that off anytime we ever see what Millhouse turns out to be. Yeah, actually, Millhouse in in all futures is straight. Mm-hmm. Like. Yeah. Fully straight for Lisa. Honestly, the joke works better if it's Martin Prince, but that's if you see that name on a folder that doesn't register for most people, so you right. wouldn't necessarily laugh at it. I mean, the joke could also be that the J. Lauren Pryor is is being very homophobic and even reading Millhouse's behavior, which is just labeling it as homosexual, is a horrible, shitty thing he's doing to a person when they're a child. They there's no signs of sexuality in general. Like it's so it's it's him overstepping his boundaries sure there as well on Pryor's case. I do also love Lisa screaming wave of the future. Yardley and Nancy do a really good job of like bringing down the age of their voices in this episode. And I also like that he uh, he responds to Lisa very clearly understanding what fractions are with like the simplest math problem imaginable. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> and that's how we that. decide she's gifted. Yeah. Wow. Hmm. I never yeah. thought of that. There also good animation on making a puzzle like that is uh, that's not an easy thing to draw. You know, I should have said this when we were making fun of Family Guy earlier in the episode, <laughs> but that Dominic Palcino is the director on this, and he was he has a long history working on Family mm. Guy. He only worked on Simpsons for a few years and then left for Family Guy. The school that they take Lisa to is basically the Bart the Genius School, actually. Yeah, with some of the same jokes in the background, really. Yeah, well, eh, why write a new one? Who cares? <laughs> uh, I. Which, if they're going to bring back season one, people use that teacher played also played by Marsha Wallace in that episode. But instead, they find out that they just can't afford it. Not the biggest fan of the implication that the only people who get free college are minorities, like or free te- teaching as minorities. Not a fan of that joke. Kind of, kind of. Not really. That's a very mid to late nineties perception of things like affirmative action and whatnot Mm. like that was very much how that kind of policy was talked about in a sort of like sort of casually dismissive way especially by you know by white people Mm -hmm. frankly Mm -hmm. oh i guess i don't get any help because i'm not a minority like yuck i i do yeah that that style of joke i am not a fan of but you know they could buy lisa some clay buy her some clay that's that's cheaper than a saxophone (laughs) will end up being Uh, i do like this act break that sums up that uh the the hell that is being a sitcom character where nothing ever changes poor marge our family was suffering through its worst crisis ever 
Bart was miserable at school, and Lisa's gifts were going to waste. Uh, Homer, it's five years later, and I'm still miserable at school. And my gifts are still going to waste. And sometimes I feel so smothered by this family, I just want to scream till my lungs explode. <gasps> right now, go start dinner now. You do that. Oh. That little, that last Marge, like, like, yeah. uh, ooh, boy, she's. I, I think she's, I missed that when I was watching it for this, uh, for this run. I only caught it in the audio clippage because it's it adds an extra punctuation to like, there's Marge again swallowing her rage at being trapped in this house. <laughs> um, how many, how many seasons removed are we from Marge's big breakdown? Six. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Wow. So again, nothing has really changed at all. She is still just, you know, on um, her emotions are just like clawing and screaming to get out while she is stifling them and just trying to, you know, maintain domestic bliss. She's not being appreciated. They're not all sleeping in the same bed anymore. Well, and her hair isn't like flying off her head like it was in Sherry Bobbins either. Right. So act three is where I forget everything that happens in this episode. There's a story problem that I don't like. Mm-hmm. We're suddenly so I liked when uh, in the earlier episodes where there was an economy to the Simpsons world. It's like, we have this much money and there's a lot of uh, episodes about the conflict of like, we need more money to get this. We need more money to have this. We need to make sacrifices. And I don't like in this episode that this heat wave is introduced in Act 3 and is the sort of conflict where it's like, can Homer have some slight, uh, you know, comfort for a week or does Lisa get a saxophone? It doesn't really, Mm -hmm. doesn't really track for me. And then later, not to spoil things or not to jump too far ahead the heat wave now exists in the present mm-hmm. and suddenly there's an air conditioner fund in the present that was never mentioned it, yeah. it uh, it's a bad i think it's a bad conflict i get the reason for doing that because they want they want a choice homer has to make like his homer for once puts somebody else's happiness over his like so i i get that choice they give to him i think my biggest problem with it is that they don't they have all this filler in the first two acts it's like you couldn't mention the air conditioner then you it should have been put in earlier i agree and yeah. i and i feel like a lot of this feels artificial and a bit superfluous because this heat wave stuff apparently is from another un- produced script that they wrote like uh, they put in that material from that script into this third act like a lot of the heat wave jokes or jokes about you know um the conflict that can come from having a heat wave and maybe maybe homer wanted to buy an air conditioner and there was another thing the family needed mm. but the other money conflicts were a lot better like can they get money or will the dog die that's more high stakes and can they get money or will homer be uncomfortable for a small <laughs> amount of time yeah i agree it's kind of a weak conflict uh the, the one pass i will give it is that the visual gag of homer's attempted uh, air conditioning thievery is one of the better examples of him just being really really bad at crime yeah i uh, do love that and that does feel like it was taken right from that episode they didn't make because exactly. it does stand alone but you know at the same time i will say the heat, the heat wave is maybe the only part of that that doesn't bother me because you know hey uh, those heat waves they're uh they're, they're happening with a much greater frequency that's true uh, mm-hmm. these days but i will i will say that the thing that maybe doesn't tie it all together for me and the thing I agree with with Bob most on is that why did it take five years for them to save 200 more dollars to buy an air conditioner <laughs> yeah. like the timeline of that does not really make any sense at all yeah they, they've never been this poor and I also well this is another real early seasons kind of callback because in the Bill and Josh years for comedic sake though they I though it hurt plotting wise they just created the joke of like Homer has a thousand dollars in his wallet if Bart says I need seven hundred dollars to buy an issue scratchy cell he pulls it out of his wallet and hands it to him like they money became meaningless 
at a certain point in the Simpsons household. So it always feels weird when they bring it back to like, well, we can't afford $200. Like that, that is quite extreme. I mean, you know, people are used to being living paycheck to paycheck now, but in the 90s, <laughs> come on. We were living large yeah. on those Clinton books. Yeah. <laughs> and I also feel like, not to go too long about this, but the first act of Bart of Darkness has way better heat wave jokes, including how Homer imp- improvises the refrigerator into an air conditioning device with building a tent around it. Oh, it's, yeah. it's cool yeah. in here, boy. <laughs> yeah, no, that's that's a really good bit. And I, I agree, heat wave stuff has been done better. A lot of the aspects of this third act have been done better elsewhere in the series. That said, Flanders having to be like, actually having to ask the question, did you steal my air conditioner? Despite the footprints and the fucking the trail leading back to the house and the, like the jury rigged sort of like wooden setup to keep yeah. the air conditioner into the window, like I, I'm almost willing to forgive it all just for that joke. <laughs> Some rare anger from Flanders. Too. Yeah, he's uh, he. Well, in the 1990, he should be. Maybe he's less used to this by now too. With Hulk that's true. Her, yeah. But, well, so when the act begins, we get the funky grandpa scene, which that also is another callback. A joke about grandpa's teeth is another very Gene and Reese era thing like it, the actually it was in it was just in Springfield files that a turtle stole his teeth <laughs> so there's uh, there's some repetition of jokes here I do like though I like his speech about the funky grandpa me too well grandpa as long as you're here we were telling a story that took place when Bart was five and Lisa was three. Oh, I know this story the year is 1906 the president is the divine Miss Sarah Bernhardt. And all over America, people were doing a dance called the Funky Grandpa. Oh, I'm the... <laughs> yes. Well, as if our troubles weren't bad enough, Springfield was going through an unseasonable heat wave. And so Springfield's heat wave continues, with today's temperature exceeding the record for this date. Set way back four billion years ago when the Earth was just a ball of molten lava. Oh, so hot. So Sarah Bernhard died in 1923, in case you're wondering how old Grandpa is. That's one of the ones I never bothered to look up. I actually genuinely don't know who Sarah Bernhard is. She was a famous stage actress who became a silent movie star. Okay. Yep. Honestly, this is the, the you have informed me now, Bob, because I always heard that as Sandra Bernhardt, the the you know comedian. comedian. Yeah, and I was just like, oh, it's it's random that he would be referencing something so new. Uh, they spell and pronounce their names differently, Henry. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> and we get some nice. Uh, by the way, frozen peas are the comedy food item. I've noticed mm-hmm. uh, they just appeared in uh, Principal and the Popper. Uh, These yeah. are Armin's frozen peas. Yeah. And Homer is uh, icing his butt down with frozen peas. Mm-hmm. That's uh, that's a funny place to put those but yeah actually in the heat wave gags in in bard of darkness he also is rubbing himself with frozen foods and like, also uh, uh full of country goodness and green penis from the critic <laughs> frozen peas the are the frozen pea joke. yes that is the greatest frozen, frozen peas frozen. are just the funniest food green penis is one of the i fucking love that's that. terrible oh, that's terrible, terrible. <laughs> uh and then when they talk about art versus uh air conditioning like i do like the gag well i don't love it the the homer's you know imagination but it also reminds me of mom and pop art the next episode gene will al gene will have soul writing credit on so i wonder if he was thinking you know if this is what led him to like we should do a whole one about homer becoming an artist and him interacting at museum 
DMs, which it's uh, it's it's sad, but sadly realistic of a father going like one Saturday a month at the museum. No way. Nah. Yeah. The, the stealing of the thing also fits with Springfield files. Again, they did stealing the weather vane. They repeated the, oh, they right. repeated the stealing thing. Oh, from right. Wow. Well, I mean, that was a very uh, like a very early Homer Flanders interaction of having stolen items from him. Mm-hmm. Uh, though I did appreciate too the accuracy of it is the white snowball one is the cat in these yeah. flashbacks because she has yet to be run over by Clovis Quimby. <laughs> well, now that's oh, is that who actually killed Snowball One? It's mentioned in Triassic Four three right yeah so that okay. is that is a halloween episode so it's it's someone in question yeah uh, he, uh snowball one was run over by uh mayor quimby's beer swilling brother clovis yes was the line yes. i believe okay. uh and we never actually see clovis though do we clovis is a, a character only mentioned he's the real billy carter of the quimby family but yeah <laughs> yeah perhaps he's visible at the quimby compound with the uh where the beat up waiter happens ah mm-hmm. uh, yes Although this ode to recirculated air and air conditioning, it's something I, I mean, I, I grew to love the smell of recirculated air growing up in Florida. And now it is like, I barely ever experience it anymore living in the Bay area. It's one of the nicest things about living in the Bay area. It is. Yeah. Growing up, like, so I lived in Virginia when I was a little kid and I remember, you know, air conditioning essentially being ubiquitous because the second the summer comes around, uh, it is difficult to live without it. Oh yeah. And moving to California, it was interesting being like, Oh yeah, it's hot, but like not that bad. And just like it, if you talk to any any Cal- Northern California homeowner, like you talk about having you know central air or air conditioning, they're like, why would we ever have that? And now <laughs> that monster. I'm back on the East Coast, it's just like it's it is a dire necessity. It was weird for me the first time when I moved out here and looking at apartments because I just kept thinking like, but where's the AC? Where the how do I control this? And it's just there. You open a window and have a nice breeze. That's how you control the the it's crazy temperature. Talk. <laughs> But somehow, even on like the, in like Southern California, where you don't necessarily get the nice breeze, people are still just not married to this idea of air conditioning. Like it's just it's just somehow not ingrained geographically in people who live on the West Coast. <laughs> now that's bonkers to me because when we when we recorded in LA uh, last summer, it was torture without the the uh, AC on oh, in yeah. that place. Like I felt so bad though for our guests because. It's like, hey, let's record a podcast. We do have to turn the AC off while we record, though. And so it was just dripping. talking about The Simpsons and dripping with sweat. That was. We then get to see the first meeting of Bart and Milhouse. Uh, hi. Uh, I have soy milk. The doctor says the real kind could kill me. I wish I was interesting like you. <laughs> <laughs> You're funny. I am? Yeah. <laughs> and the world needs a clown. Hmm. I uh, I like seeing cute little Millhouse with his shorter hair and his uh, awkwardness. The though I do uh, <laughs> now him drinking soy is uh, it means a different thing now than it used it to. It does. That takes on a different connotation in in 2019 terms. <laughs> I fr- I freeze frame that image. I wanted to put it online just because it says so much. Like baby <laughs> Millhouse holding a big thing of soy milk, <laughs> and, we, and actually in Bart on the Road we have Martin screaming soy soy soy. <laughs> <laughs> 
So uh, uh, for, for it, new meaning, new meaning. Yeah. Though I, I mean, it shows that like you know, for the longest time, soy is associated with what uh, less masculine people do. Even though that's like complete bullshit. I this is not. We do not agree with that. But it's it all is, been debunked. Don't yes, worry. Yeah. It's a delightful protein. Everyone should try it. Yeah. It's it's better in so many ways. Well, also, like, I have... I I think I stayed away from milk substitutes like that because it got, you know, lightly made fun of. It's like, well, Millhouse drinks it, so you're a dork if you can't... Or you're too weak. It almost had the message here of, like, you're too weak to exist if you can't drink real milk like a real man. But so for the longest time, I drank regular milk, even though it would often upset my stomach. <laughs> Uh, I, I broke down to skim milk and finally about five years ago, I realized like if I'm just drinking skim milk, why aren't I doing almond milk? What's the, what, what's the point here? Everyone knows that true masculinity is trying to beat your digestive system into submission. That's just, that's how it works. That's what you're supposed to do. You, you are the master of your domain. <laughs> I mean, John Wayne had a very impacted colon at death. So I think uh, that shows you right there. It's a race to who can die first. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so Bart's class clowning, I, I like how it's not clever that this is yeah, the, yeah. the it's kindergarten. Yeah, exactly. Well, the, but they could have, you know, another show could have written him to have like, no, these jokes that Bart says should be funny or they could be smart, but like, no, Bart is a, a kindergartner and farts are funny. That's, that's all there is to it. I guess uh, this is the origin of eat my shorts as well. Yes. Yeah. yeah this is a very big, this really, yes. Yeah, like, like, like you said, Bob. Like Lisa's first words, this has become the Bart story of his first Eat My Shorts, so not just like, his uh, You know, Bart's funnier. Let's do more Bart things. <laughs> Duty. <laughs> Bugger. <laughs> Man, that is killer material. Skinner is a nut. He has a rubber butt. Young man, I can assure you my posterior is nothing more than flesh, bone, and that metal plate I got in Nam. Uh, I want you to knock off that potty talk right now. The principal said potty. <laughs> you listen to me, son. You've just started school, and the path you choose now may be the one you follow for the rest of your life. Now, what do you say? Eat my shorts. All right, I'll eat Eat your shorts. Yeah, eat my shorts. Buttman. 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 He's the greatest showman since that kid who eats worms. My 15 minutes of fame are over. The foley on that just turns my stomach. It grows so prickly. It grows me out more hearing it than seeing it. Yeah. I, uh, I mean, the worms in his mouth are not particularly, you know, realistic looking worms. They're the big cartoony bulbous one as opposed to the really wet, skinny, slimy ones. Uh, oh, boy, you're making this all the more appetizing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I'm, I'm really, that's that's what I'm here for. <laughs> uh, that that Buttman song that also is a, a, it's a favorite of Simpsons to make, to use the Batman theme because Fox owns that theme. So yeah. they don't have to pay anybody to use it. And when Bart is first seen on TV, he's singing about Batman. 
Holy crap, you're right. I, like, I first seen on this series, not on Tracy Ullman. And, uh, and Skinner yanks him off uh, away from a group of people in that same situation, too. It is definitely unintended by Gene because he, he had no clue this would air after Armin Tamzarian. But hearing him do a typical Skinner went to Vietnam joke right after Armin Tamzarian, it has a completely different meaning oh, yeah. than, than Gene intended it, just by seeing it in broadcast order. Though I do like the little, like, his his eye twitches when he says that uh, that metal played in his butt from Vietnam, which like uh, it, it implies he's uh, Skinner goes through a lot. I don't think they put metal plates in your butt though. Mm. Maybe I'm wrong, but it's funnier. <laughs> it is funny. I believe these days, if uh, that eat my shorts line were delivered in a modern context, it would be immediately uh, accompanied by that gif of all the kids freaking out because you know someone just dropped like you know the, the <laughs> ultimate line on someone. Uh, for sure. Oh God. The one with the kid like slapping both hands on the side of his face and falling over. That yeah. one, yes, yeah. exactly that okay. one. I mean, they could even put that meme on the show. They we didn't mention it. Uh, it we are in the post Simpsons memeing itself world of Lisa replying to Homer with the Homer sinking into the bushes scene. Like that's that's pretty amazing. <laughs> you know, I haven't been keeping up with the show recently, and you telling me that is telling me that I've probably made the right choice. <laughs> well, that breaks the rule. Uh, Bob, you said it. I'm not going to steal from you. <laughs> uh, I don't know what the rule. Don't remind me of a better episode. Yes, the MST3K rule of don't remind me of something better in your thing. Yeah. Like, please, which, when you see Homer going into the bushes, you're like, oh yeah, that was a funny episode. I want to watch uh, Homer Loves Slanders now. <laughs> <laughs> Bart gets a satisfying ending to his story, but what about Lisa? Well, Mo, this is it. Today's the day I get my new air conditioner. Congratulations. Who's the little chick? I'm Lisa. She has a gift. You have 13 pickled eggs in this jar and one cockroach. Ha 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 ha. Who are you, sweetheart? The health inspector? No, but I am. Ah, uh, here, have a margarita. Uh, that's a parasol. I like pickled egg mo jokes. Like those, are, those yeah. are consistent across showrunners. We saw the black pickled egg in uh, the New York episode. Yeah, just a little bit ago. I think I've only ever been to one actual bar that like definitely had pickled eggs in a jar like that, and it was definitely the diviest bar that I used <laughs> to frequent. Uh, how much would you charge for one of those pickled eggs? Like, couldn't be more than a quarter back then. I would I hope think. not. <laughs> Yeah, I yeah, you know, it feels like a very your dad's bar kind of thing, even in for our generation, uh, your dad's bar. The, yeah, the bar I'm I'm thinking of was very much before the the rowdy punk teens kind of t- took it over and made it theirs. It was definitely the the town's most dad bar, <laughs> and and it's actually pretty dark that he's taking Lisa to a bar. Yeah, like that's, at that's, night. <laughs> that's his response to being told to give her more attention is to take her to Moe's with him. But I guess this is where the story wraps up. And again, I'm not a fan of this conflict because it's like Homer has the money to buy a saxophone and he does, mm. and he's not currently hot. No one else is currently hot. There's one scene of him being hot, and that's it. Just like, is it is it really hot outside? <laughs> yeah, actually, it should be very hot right then. Yeah, <laughs> like Mo should be wiping his brow. They should all be sweating. It should be just be like more about the heat wave. Maybe Sell the when, heat wave. Like, uh, it could be as simple as when he leaves Mo's. He goes like, "Phew, it's so hot outside, yeah. man." Oh well, let's walk home. Well, and then he sees the air conditioner. 
Yeah, yeah. No, he just he just sees the air conditioner and just you know immediately his brain goes to ah yes sweet recirculated air. <laughs> and uh, that's I I do like a fun Patty and Selma are awful scene. That's nice. Those, those are they don't do enough of those. But then it's also very like it was something I didn't get as a kid. Now seeing it, it, it bothers me that like Homer just let Lisa walk across the street. To oh, King you're right. Toots. Yeah. Like, but should it be across the street from Moe's though? It should be right next, next door. To yeah. yeah. It's weird. Like the air conditioning store is next to Moe's, but mm. they moved King Toots across. Maybe King Toots had moved next to Moe's over Later time. he got where it blows was five, uh, year, five years later. That's what happened. <laughs> the premium it's because he didn't buy that air conditioner. They went out of business. Oh my ah. God. Yeah. I'm only pointing this out because it seems like they should pay attention to this because that was in uh, Lisa's pony, which is when King Toots was established, being next to Moe's. I mean, even the, having the plot point that they leave Moe's and are immediately at King Toots, that is them r- noticing the proximity of King Toots to Moe's for plot purposes. So it's, it's just one step removed from being exactly accurate when they want to make an accurate reference. But hey, we already created a headcanon of why they That's moved true. across the street. Good enough for me. <laughs> Well, I do like the I do like seeing King Toots again from from Lisa's Pony, and even Joey Jojo Junior. Shabadoo runs the place still. But I I I think too the the music stuff always sticks with Al Jean because he's mentioned like his brother plays the saxophone, like his his brother is professionally a saxophonist. So the, the musical instruments and family really do speak to Gene. So I like that it's coming from that kind of personal space for him. The episode hinges on the sweetness of the moment of Homer buying her the sax. Like that's what this is all about. And I do think they execute it well in this in this next clip I'm going to play. I actually, I like this moment so much, I bought a, a little, like, cartoon drawing of oh, the moment. That's right. That's from this episode. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's hanging oh. on the wall in my apartment uh, of Homer pointing at things and saying, tuba ma ba obo ma which, you know, it's, it's funny, but also like, come on, Homer. Musical instrument. Would that be a way to encourage a gifted child? Just give me a sign. <laughs> It works for me. Uh, what do you like, Lisa? Violin, tuba ma ba, oboe ma bo? That one. Ooh, saxophone. Two hundred dollars. Would you like an inscription, sir? Yeah. To Lisa. Never forget your daddy loved. <laughs> and that inscription is still there today. It's a very sweet moment. Yeah. I, I think uh, Harry changed that guy's voice too. It was like, I happen to be that moron. Yep. Yeah. That was a little different. Yeah. Before. It was definitely a little bit more of a sniveling tone in the yeah. previous iteration. Uh, and also, that saxophone is from the Foster Home uh, episode. Yes. Yeah. When uh, Homer misses Lisa. I think that was the last. Saxophone. <laughs> I think that was the last time they talked about her saxophone. Maybe. Yeah. Because <laughs> they, they found a lot of more other ways to show Lisa to be an intelligent beyond her years kid they didn't need like bird camp the like bird camp <laughs> or or her uh, or her german language wheel too like the, things like that so they kind of let, got less interested in the sax being the thing i do think like the the three-year-old that can play the saxophone like that's a viral video star right there and two hundred dollars for a saxophone even in 1990 it seems like a steal well 
I will say oh, no. I did a little research on this. It actually is accurate for now. Really? Okay. Uh, when I went to, uh, well, the SEO, the the first Google result for beginner saxophones is what we should definitely trust on this. But uh, but yeah, on Amazon, there are beginners like learner saxophones, and they do run in the $200 range. Interesting. Like, so, and that that is the most I would, you would buy the beginner version for a three-year-old. Like there's no way, I mean, a three-year-old who isn't leaving. Lisa is going to break. I broke everything I was given as a three-year-old. <laughs> she could be as cool as Mr. B Natural now. <laughs> oh, boy. So number two, so the heat wave thing I don't like, but number two, they did, Al Jean did a sentimental Lisa sax story with Round Springfield in which Bleeding yep. Gums gives Lisa his saxophone and then he dies. So are we to believe she has two saxophones? <laughs> is this a magic saxophone? I want answers. <laughs> I think it's completely fair to think that maybe perhaps, you know, she has her one that she got from her mentor and then she has this other saxophone that she, you know, got from her dad that uh, she has sentimental attachment to. It's yeah, it's, yeah. it's entirely possible for them to own two saxophones. I don't mind the logic. the other one got sold, you know, for, you know, because they needed to pay their mortgage that, that month or it something. Could be. I mean, I don't mind the logic, but just like you already did the saxophone story. Like, yeah. yeah. And the Bleeding Gums Murphy story is admittedly like, a, I think a much more emotionally resonant episode because there is an actual character that you can kind of latch onto and attach to yeah we didn't like story. it we didn't like it that much but I, I like it more than this i think there's more of a through line uh mm. and more of an emotional beat and less like distracted by bart yeah sure. henry's thinking about it yeah no i agree i agree i yeah i don't i guess uh I, I do love Lisa Sachs is a great place for emotion. But yeah, when you think about how, you know, this happened over three years, but in three different seasons, Gene and Reese oversaw six episodes and that two of them are about Lisa's saxophone and the emotional, the emotional core of the episode is her saxophone. It does just feel slightly repetitive. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, like I said, I, you know, there is a, a personal element of this episode, the, the sort of, you know, the, the cherished attachment to your first instrument and, you know, sort of your parents kind of, you know, trying to support your, your early gifts that I, I think does resonate to a degree, but mm -hmm. like as an entire episode of television, I'd say maybe half of it actually works. <laughs> and yeah, you're right. I, I also, I do really like the idea that Lisa, she doesn't remember how she got her saxophone. And that kind of speaks to, as a kid, you don't really think of the sacrifices a parent had made for you, perhaps. And you, you just think like, well, yeah, and I just had this thing because you're, you were a kid. You didn't know your parents had to give something up to give you a nice thing. Like all their dreams. Like all their dreams, yep. all their money, security, happiness, all those things. <laughs> for sure. It's, it's all of that. And also just... I can you remember anything from when you were three years old? Because I sure as hell can't. No, no. I believe the earliest memory I've always held on to. I was maybe four. I just remember sitting in front, like seeing a pie and thinking that pie, this sounds like a, I make now, a Henry, bad joke about don't myself. Don't you eat here, this but, pie. <laughs> yeah. uh, I think I remember drawing a penguin when I was three. Mm. That's, that's really my first memory. I have a very specific memory from what I'm told is my second birthday of me launching my face into a cake. Uh, <laughs> but 
but it's a complete blank from there until kindergarten. <laughs> you knocked yourself out and uh, were hospitalized yep. with a cake injury. <laughs> I mean, I did give myself a concussion as a kid, but that's a, that's a story for another day. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> um, uh, so we do get to see Homer make the fateful decision of what to do with his air conditioner money while getting roasted on all sides. Wow. So that's how Lisa got her sacks. Next, I'll tell you the origin of Maggie's pacifier. What origin? We get them for a dollar ninety-five down at the Safeway. Well, I really liked that story, but it still doesn't fix this. You know, Homer, I think we have some money in the air conditioner account again. Hmm. Oh, but Marge, am I doomed to spend the rest of my life sweating like a pig? Yeah, not to mention looking like a pig, eating mm. like a pig. Don't forget the smell. Will you get off my front lawn. Why don't you make me? Why? Oh, I give up. <laughs> well, don't worry about me, Dad. <laughs> it's not how it looks, it's how it sounds. Well, sir, we got a scorcher today. And to cool off, nothing beats Rootopia, the iced tea brewed by hippies, but distributed by a heartless multinational corporation. Uh, Fruitopia, huh? That's, I mean, that, uh, al- yeah. that also sets it very much in 1995. Yeah. I drank my share of Fruitopia. Well, the truth is, with Fruitopia, it's not, it was never brewed by hippies. It was always a Coca-Cola product, I, as I had learned. Like, Snapple could at least say at one time they were not a multinational corporation. They were a mom and pop thing that then went nationwide. But Fruitopia exists because they saw how big Coca-Cola saw how big Snapple was getting. They said, we could make that. So they called it Fruitopia and pretended it was being made by hippies. And they crushed Snapple. <laughs> when was the last time you saw a Snapple in your life? Fruitopia is the dead one. That's, yeah. You can't see Fruitopia. I don't see no. Snapple anywhere, though. Hmm. I still occasionally see Snapple at the grocery store that I go to regularly, but it is not in great volume. Hmm. They got to re bring back the Snapple lady, and then they, those, they can start selling it again. Those heady Snapple days are over. <laughs> and uh, we got the time honored filler of Vin Scully on the uh, the thing too. Which, oh yeah. yeah. Well, I mean Harry Shearer doing. He can Vince imitate Scully. Vin Scully. <laughs> uh, yeah, but again, it's like so now now Homer needs an air conditioner in the present, and now it's hot in the present. Like it doesn't track for me. It's like established that it's hot in Act One. Mm-hmm. And speaking of hot, remember that air conditioner fun, and then go into yes. your store. I don't know. Just like I want. I this thing should be earlier than Act 3, this this whole heat wave thing. In the past yeah. and the present, there's two heat waves. Well, Bob, they just didn't have time with fully recreating the All in the Family opening. Uh, erase one grandpa joke. <laughs> or two uh, Homer dream sequences. But make sure to keep Apu on the front lawn for yes, a while. That's, that's a, a good bit. That's a good, like when Homer immediately gives up, uh, getting <laughs> off the couch, like, oh, I give up. <laughs> I know, I got Why don't we give that line to the other? Yeah, let's do it. Also, okay, you know what? I'm going to throw, throw a weird nitpick in here, too. Go for it. Why do they reference the Safeway? When they're talking about Maggie's pacifier, because I think it's pretty st- heavily established that the only place that they shop is the Quickie Mart. Yeah, yeah. yeah Maybe that's, that's why Apu's uh, spying on them <laughs> to find out their shopping yeah. habits. Well, so there's the, we've never seen a Safeway in Springfield before. It doesn't exist. It's such a yeah. They, she could say Quickie, Quickie Mart. Mart. You know what? Let's mm-hmm. th- let's f- fix up that joke there too. We have to play the line of the show jingle to make sure oh. everyone's happy. So that was for the Homer getting off the couch line. The joke. So one of three surprise Apus in this uh, episode. <laughs> I forgot about. Th- I thought that was an all singing, all dancing where Apu appears uh, yeah. unnaturally, but it's in this episode. 
<laughs> Did I somehow manage to mess up the joke of the week uh, cue both times I've been on this show? <laughs> you, you may have. It's okay. It's okay. okay. You're just too excited. <laughs> It'll all come out in the edit. Don't worry. So then we get Lisa playing the sax. So you also get a clip montage in this episode too, just to fill some time. There's some fun burns on Al Jean by Mike Reese on the commentary. And when this montage is playing and he's like, gee, it's just the greatest hits of your career, Al. (laughs) (laughs) It is mostly episodes. He either has writing credit on or credit on, or he executive produced. Yeah. And uh, yeah, the song there is Jerry Rafferty's Baker street. Well, though specifically the, the famous saxophone song, solo riff in it which is not the only like there are lyrics to that song but who remembers it's about those? sherlock holmes right <laughs> is it I, uh, I mean he lives on baker street that's true but uh, yeah no that is that is the saxophone line of that era like there are two songs that I, I immediately identify with the instrument of the saxophone it is baker street and it is glenn fry's you belong to the city and oh, i think yeah, the more yeah. famous of the two yeah, I think uh, this is a this is a great riff for Lisa to play that makes you like I remember that song. It's a good they they're good at li- you know they license a lot of songs in the these Gene and Reese satellite episodes. I they must have had a bigger song license budget than the the regular show had perhaps. But this use of Baker Street is great. It did lead me to look up that there is controversy in the writing of this song. Oh, no, mm. so Jerry Rafferty. Formerly of Steeler's Wheel, then he went solo after that band broke up and did this song in 78. He says he wrote this song. He has sole songwriting credit on it. But the saxophonist of this, Raphael Ravenscroft, <laughs> quite a name. Wow. Is he like a D&D campaign character? <laughs> that is like the most session musician name I have ever heard. Uh, but but he says that he wrote that song, sax riff, that it was his oh. songwriting and that he is unjustly uncredited for it and also like didn't get publishing money for it either for that fact. Now, Jerry's stance is, no, I wrote that riff beforehand and then gave it to he. Gary or Jerry doesn't play the saxophone, I believe. So he just gave it to a session guy. And, but in the, apparently they, he released a demo track version of the uh, Baker street, which has that riff played by a guitar. So it would seem that Raphael Ravenscroft might not have written it, but I think he, the only part of that song anyone remembers is his, uh, his sax riff. Yeah. So- if you told me there were no lyrics in that song and it was just that riff, you know, like done for four minutes, I would totally believe you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Me too. Who needs lyrics when you've got that riff? Yeah. You, no one needs that. Otherwise. And yeah, so after the clip show, then we get a, uh, you got to end on a joke. You can't end on just sweetness. So we get, uh, we get what counts as a final joke of the episode. You're a good father. All right, learn from the master. Where's Mickey? Where's Mickey? 
I'm not kidding. I can't see. My retinas have detached again. He was blind as a bat. Nice to poo appearance. So we mentioned the two most popular sax riffs of the 80s. We forgot one. The George Michael one. The, Even more important than that. Oh, which The one? Night Court theme. Oh. <laughs> it's in my head right now. Yeah, you're to- you're 100 percent. And right. you got the woodblock in there too. Oh, <laughs> uh, uh, that's that is a classic. You you, you are correct. Yeah, man, now I want to watch Night Court. <laughs> Talking Night Court, we can do it. Oh, Thirty thousand so dollars. Thirty thousand dollars. So good. No, I feel like we'd be even meaner about a season nine episode of Night Court. I think <laughs> is Bull really an alien? Oh, come now. <laughs> Yeah, no, once you get about three bailiffs deep on that show, it, it, there's a point where it definitely trails off. I, I don't know, whatever. That was a show that I watched obsessively in reruns, like middle of af- the afternoon when I was oh, growing up. me too. So many sex jokes I did not understand as a child. R.I.P. Harry Anderson. Aw. Wait, did Harry Anderson die? Oh, yeah. Uh, yep. A year or two ago. Pretty young. Maybe like 60, I think. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. That <laughs> bums me the hell out. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Alex. He's doing magic <laughs> with the Why did you have to break the news to me that Harry Anderson died? Oh, no. Uh, I'm sorry it had to be me. <laughs> oh, that sucks. Uh, I like this uh, this final Apu appearance here. They have just accepted Apu lives here now and is eating their mm-hmm. sandwiches. They they don't object to it at all. He just walks in. I think they gave him a sandwich because they were like, what is Apu doing in the house? So they just gave him a prop to have. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And on another grandpa joke, just to get you to get you uh, across the finish line, really. If you're gonna do one, just saying detached retinas is funny. That's yeah, fine. Yeah. Yes, that's a funny joke. Just like flesh eating virus. <laughs> yeah. So it's great that like both Apu and Grandpa are just sort of like dropped into the house just for jokes, mm-hmm. arbitrarily. <laughs> I like it a lot. And we go out on a nice sax solo version of the theme song, which is great instrumentation. I, I'm gonna give that credit to Alf Clausen and Ooh, his yeah. team, which this is the kind of stuff you can't get after you fire Alf Clausen from the show yeah. for budgetary concerns. And the best Gracie Films riff ever. Yeah. It's so good. It's so, so good. Which that'll be taking us out on this podcast. Excellent. Please leave the Gracie thing in. So, uh, yeah, any final thoughts from this? Like we said uh, earlier, I feel that uh, it's got some problems, but I don't want to blame anyone specifically. I wouldn't blame Al Jean. It just it does not have the machine. It does not have all of the talent you usually get writing The Simpsons. And it's sort of dated in that it was meant to air earlier. So it's got a few issues. Ultimately, I don't buy the emotional story, but it's not terrible. And there are jokes in this I do like. So I'll give it a B minus. Mm-hmm. Henry, uh, we're now assigning letter wait, grades. Yeah, we've <laughs> never given a grade before on the show. Uh, I'm instituting a new segment. Okay. I mean, I'll give it a, I would give it a C plus just because I think there, I felt Sherry Bobbins was kind of a weak episode, but it had some very good songs in it that yeah, really support yeah. it, even though there's some like easy jokes in it. I think this is just a lot of filler and easy jokes and that there's about two minutes of really good sentimentality that this filler is wrapped around that that I really like, but there aren't even enough really great jokes in this amid all that filler. There's some, there's a few good jokes. This is not a complete loss, but yeah, I, I'd say I'd give it C plus. How about you, Alex? By the way, we're not uh, grading episodes anymore. That's just a joke. <laughs> we don't have to grade that. You know, I, I would probably put it in the solid B to B minus range. I, I think that 
of the flashback episodes, the actual flashback parts of this episode, I think, are generally pretty good. The, like you said, the, pre- the premise is very flimsy, but uh, they're, the, the emotional core of what they are trying to flashback to, I think, mostly works for me, like I said, because I have a certain personal connection to some aspects of this. And, you know, like there's there's enough in there for, to where I was watching it. I was like, I was still kind of laughing along. It is definitely not like a, a super standout highlight episode for me. Cool. So thanks for joining us, Alex. Before we go, uh, we'll do our plugs once we're off the air with you. But before we go, can you tell us where we can find you on Twitter and what you're doing right now? Uh, I am Alex underscore Navarro. Uh, uh, N-A-V-A-R-R-O on Twitter. And what I am doing right now is just getting ready for another year of video games. Uh, you know, we'll have a bunch of stuff up on Giant Bomb coming this year, but uh, we're still figuring out what some of that's going to be. Excellent. Yeah. Looking forward to it. Yeah, you're, the Game of the Year stuff, as always, mm. was some of my favorite game content Like I watch all year. I, I've pretty, you know, me and Bob used to be in the game press, not anymore. I don't pay as much attention to it as I used to, but I still always make time for, you know, the like dozens of yes. hours of giant bomb end of the year content. And this year's was really great as, as usual. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you very much. I'm glad. And I'm, uh, it's, it's heartening to hear that, you know, amid the, the many, many podcasts you guys do, you were still able to somehow find <laughs> 25 hours to listen uh-huh. to me and my coworkers yell about video games. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, it's, it was perfect timing over the Christmas break. Oh yeah, for so, sure. Yeah. Cool. Right on, man. <laughs> So thanks again to Alex Navarro. Again, check out all of his stuff at Giant Bomb. We're big fans of that website and that whole group of people. But as for us, if you want to support us and get a lot of cool stuff on top of that, we are the Talking Simpsons Network. And if you go to patreon.com slash Talking Simpsons and sign up at the $5 level, you'll get every episode of this podcast and What a Cartoon a week ahead of time and ad-free. And along with that, you'll get a ton of bonus episodes, exclusive miniseries, and our upcoming King of the Hill miniseries, Talk King of the Hill, which will go over the entire first season of King of the Hill. And we unlocked a second miniseries for 2019. We we hit our $11,000 goal, so at some point in 2019, there will be a second miniseries. So if you sign up today, you'll get so much content from the past and the future. It's amazing. What else do we have, Henry? Oh, man. Well, new supporters and old can enjoy our many interviews with Simpsons veterans like Dan Graney, uh, who I previously mentioned this episode, David Silverman, Mark Kirkland, Mike Reese, Bill Oakley, Josh Weinstein, Mike Scully, and so many others. And there's some cool ones bubbling up uh, in the background for... Mm-hmm. The uh, the uh, in twenty nineteen, so keep an eye out for that. And if you sign up at patreon.com slash talking simpsons, why not go the premium route and go to ten dollars a month? If you did, you would get access to all of our previous videos that we did of exclusive content, including me and Bob going through every Simpsons short. If you wanted to see what we thought of the original Simpsons shorts, you can see that there. But most importantly, we just started our What a Cartoon Movie podcast where oh, me yeah. and Bob each month for $10 and up patrons go through a different animated film that is chosen by our listeners. First, we did Batman Mask of the Phantasm. Then we did Kiki's Delivery Service. January, we'll see Akira, the 1988-2019 anime (laughs) classic. You can only hear it if you go up to the $10 level. So please consider doing that at patreon.com slash talking Simpsons. And if you're a $5 and up Patreon, you can also vote for which movie we do every month for that podcast. And you can also vote for our next 2019 miniseries if you're a patron when we have that poll. And again, that is patreon.com slash talking Simpsons. As for me, I've been one of your hosts, Bob Mackey. Find me on Twitter as Bob Servo. My other podcast is Retronauts. It's a classic gaming podcast every Monday and occasionally on Friday. It's at retronauts.com or look for Retronauts in your podcast machine. Uh, check it out. I'm sure you
sure you'll love it. How about you, Henry? I am Henry Gilbert, and you can follow me on Twitter at H-E-N-E-R-E-Y-G. I tweet out my thoughts on new episodes of this podcast and our sister podcast, What a Cartoon, as well as my thoughts on The Simpsons, events in the world of politics and comedy and video games, all of that and so much more at H-E-N-E-R-E-Y-G. Thanks for joining us, folks. We'll see you next week for Treehouse of Horror 8. my phone already. Dear Lisa, may your new saxophone bring you years of dope.